Hello and welcome to the Tally Ho, our podcast all about classic cult TV show The Prisoner, with me Eason and me Bex. And today it's episode fourteen, Living in Harmony. Yeah, so this is one of the strangest, most experimental episodes of a show that was frequently strange and experimental. Uh, these days you would get shows doing an episode like this almost as a, a gimmick, yeah. in the way that they might do a musical episode or... A uh, black and white episode. Yeah, or, a silent episode. Yeah. It would be, oh, with this, we're doing a Western episode and it would be a bit of a, a sort of throwaway, jokey thing. But in this case, it's taken as seriously as every other episode of The Prisoner and it's a really wonderful thing. Yeah, so the episode is presented as a Western and I think... I'm sure we'll come on to this during our discussion. It feels like it's uh, addressing sort of three main things in addition to the actual content of the episode. One is it's telling us about how the concept of the prisoner was so good that it could be actually transported into a different genre yeah, and still be as compelling as any other episode. The second thing is that I think it tells us a lot about Westerns because... Westerns themselves are a genre in which I think you can tell any story. And indeed, there probably has been every version of a story told in in the form of a Western as well. And the third thing, I suppose, relates to the writing credits behind it as well. We'll talk about this a little bit. Uh, The episode was originally written by uh, Ian Rakoff, who was an assistant editor on the episode. And it was written in response to uh, McGowan's call to the uh, crew to come up with ideas for episodes and there's some interesting aspects of the episode that speak to Ian's own personal experiences which are not uh, mutually exclusive to the prisoner but I think show us why Ian himself had a real affinity with the show when it was at its smartest at its most political and at its most allegorical as well. Yeah, and the other thing to bear in mind is um, when you consider Ian's huge love of comics um, and his knowledge of Western comics in particular, there are clear influences in this episode of specific comics that he had read that really inspired big elements of the show. I mean, as far as the the town itself being called Harmony, um, that came from a comic. There's There's a direct visual reference to a Gene Autry comic in there. It's, it's an episode that wears its influences on its sleeve, I think. Um, not just the comics, but also obviously you know, spaghetti westerns and things like that and the way that the whole thing is shot. So before we get into things in further depth, uh, we'd like to say a big thank you to everyone who got in touch with us over the last couple of weeks, who's been listening to the podcast. It's really lovely to hear from you and to know that people are still with us as we enter the home straight, uh, hurtling towards the end of The Prisoner. And also, um, we've been in contact with quite a few people now who are watching The Prisoner for the first time. And uh, so a lot of the discussion we've had with people online largely has been with people who have watched the show before. They've watched it several times and they're kind of listening in as they're watching again sometimes or just listening to the podcast, which is fantastic. But several new people are coming to the show for the first time, mainly because there are lots of references to The Prisoner in popular culture. At the moment, obviously, it's in its uh, 50th year, both in the UK and the US as well. And in the US, it's recently been put on um, Amazon Prime, so lots of people are now watching it over there. And it's been really interesting that people are coming to it completely fresh and watching an episode and then listening to our podcast and then 
getting in touch with us about what they think about it, which is really nice. And so we do hope that people are enjoying our episode recaps and discussions. And also, uh, we're really grateful to all the people who are coming on as guests for uh, most of our episodes as well, because that really is an exciting thing to add to our um, ability to relate our thoughts about The Prisoner to you, our listeners. Yeah, and it's particularly helpful now that, as you say, it's now on Amazon Prime in the US, that it's finally available on the streaming service in the US, because we know a lot of people were having trouble trying to get hold of a copy, um, or, you know, waiting interminable amounts of time for it to be available on those DVD rental services. But it's finally available for streaming, which is great news. So we're going to be talking about the episode Living in Harmony. Then, as usual, we're going to have uh, news from the world of The Prisoner. And in lieu of having our usual guest interview within the episode itself, as a special bonus, we're going to be putting out a separate episode, which kind of goes along with this one. But as a heads up, it should be coming as the next one in our stream, probably next week. Yeah. And that bonus episode is going to be an interview we had with the writer of the episode, Ian Rakoff. And we sat down with him a couple of weeks back and we had a long and rambling discussion about not just the prisoner, but his really illustrious career, uh, really right in the middle of things in in, uh, British film over the last 50 years, where he's been involved in and around some of the biggest movies in British film history and also worked with some real greats like John Borman, uh, Lindsay Anderson and uh, Nick Rogue as well. And he talks to us in that interview about uh, his work on The Prisoner, his career, his interest in comics, and also his life growing up in South Africa, which has shaped a lot of his artistic output, including the episode Living in Harmony. Yeah, so we're going to bring you a short preview of that, uh, that interview at the end of this episode, and then the whole thing will be coming out as our next episode, because it's... Uh, going to be quite long but really fascinating um it was wonderful spending an afternoon with him he's a really really fascinating guy so stay tuned for that next time but first let's talk about living in harmony So it starts immediately. We've got no opening credits of the kind that we would normally be used to. It's very odd this coming straight on the heels of uh, Do Not Forsake Me On My Darling, which also had a cold open. But with this, we don't even get the opening credits coming after a short period of time. Instead, we get a a classic Western-style shot of a man on horseback riding across the plains. Yeah, and it is shot just like a Western, not a prisoner version of a Western. This and the whole episode, it's just throwing you in to the world of the Western. And also not like a a TV version, but I think a very cinematic one. Um, So credit goes to director David Tomlin for, I think, realising this this vision on screen. Because it does feel, especially in the the nice Blu-ray version of The Prisoner (laughs) as well, it just feels like a a real Western of its time. But undeniably, as the episode goes on, it really is an episode of The Prisoner as well. Yeah, I think the the first of Sergio Leone's um, Dollars trilogy mm. had come out in the UK earlier that same year. I think all three of them had been out in the US, but in the in the UK, the first one had been out. So um, yeah, you can see the influence of that style of filmmaking mm. in the episode. 
And, you know, that's a good comparison because obviously in those films, Clint Eastwood played a character who was variously known as Blondie or the man with no name. And, and here, you know, that same character is, is number six, who also has no name as well. Yeah, the stranger. The stranger. <laughs> this shot, is, it's a, a beautiful shot and it has the, the wonderful dust kicking up off the back of the horse, kind of evoking the, the dry and dusty landscape. But nothing that we're remotely used to seeing in an episode of The Prisoner. Yeah, we're clearly not in the village. And what's interesting as well is that they don't let up exactly what's going on until the very end of the episode. I mean, it just throws you in and it says, this is an episode of The Prisoner, but it's just unlike any episode of The Prisoner you've seen before. Yeah, no explanation as to why we're going to see what we're about to see. And it's not just the visuals. There's a very Ennio Morricone-style score uh, that underpins a lot of the episode. In fact, a lot of the musical cues are completely new in this episode. They haven't been featured before. They just add to the feeling that they want to make this a a different feel sort of throughout. It's not going to be something where it feels like the prisoner. It's just going to be watching a western and if you enjoy that, that's great, but there's no there's no apologies if you if you don't like it. <laughs> so the episode begins with number 6 who is playing a character known as the stranger here going through essentially what is a play on the original opening credits. So mm-hmm. it's the scene where usually we would see him turning up at an office in London and handing in his resignation. Here it's done, but in the uh, in the format of this Western. Yeah, so uh, we get the stranger, who uh, apparently was a sheriff, turning up at a marshal's office. Because you can see the guy behind the desk has the word marshal written mm. on his badge. And the sheriff hands in his badge and his gun and throws it down on the table, um, just as he threw his resignation letter down on the table and knocked the tea over in the original credits. Now, I'm I'm very far from being any kind of expert on American law enforcement, but I'm pretty certain that sheriffs weren't employed by marshals. <laughs> I could be wrong, but I thought marshals were like federal and sheriffs were local. I, I don't know. I have no idea. Please tell us if you're <laughs> listening and you know what the answer to this is. Uh, but I imagine that the people making this probably didn't really care. Yeah. <laughs> He's in an environment where people are defined by badges as well, mm, which is yeah. what we see. So I think uh, we'll we'll come back to this idea a lot during the episode. But um, although it is presented as a Western, the whole thing is an allegory for what's going on in the village itself, uh, with good reason. And importantly, I mean, when he uh, resigns, he uh, he hands back both his badge and his gun. So um, that becomes an important plot point later on. Yeah, so the ex-sheriff then walks across the landscape, which is now looking suspiciously more British (laughs) in in its uh, foliage. So we're clearly now um, doing some kind of location shooting not too far away from where they were filming the episode compared to the opening shot, to where the opening shot came from. Uh, But the ex-sheriff is now carrying the saddle over his shoulder. And uh, apparently this is also... Um, specifically from a Gene Autry comic where um, he's carrying a a saddle on his shoulder and he gets attacked by a gang of men, which is what happens here. Yeah, and that's a a very direct piece of input from uh, from Rakoff as well. And we talk about it a little bit in our interview with him uh, coming in the next episode, but he is a huge fan, not just of comics, but also Western comics as well. 
Um, and I think it's unlikely that uh, those kind of influences would have come from anyone outside of him when it comes to creating the vision for uh, Living in Harmony. Yeah, so as he's getting attacked by this gang of about half a dozen or so goons, uh, not stripey this time, just just general purpose um, cowboy goons, uh, we get the title card coming up, Living in Harmony. This was not the original title for the episode. When Ian Rakoff wrote the original script, the title of the episode was Do Not Forsake Me, Oh My Darling, which is a reference to the song from the movie High Noon, which was also one of the influences on the episode. Now, I I don't know at what point they decided to shift that title to the one in which he has his mind swapped mm. that we talked about a couple of weeks back. But that was also originally Face Unknown. Yes, yeah. yeah. Um, and according to uh, one listener who emailed us, it was still being referred to as Face Unknown in published TV guides very late in the mm. day. So for whatever reason, they decided to move the title, Do Not Forsake Me, Oh My Darling, to Face Unknown. And they needed a new title for this one, um, hence Living in Harmony. And the, the name Harmony for the village where he ends up is again a reference to one of the Western comics that Ian Rakoff was reading. And uh, one thing to say about the uh, the fight scene here. So we often refer to the ITC fisticuffs <laughs> that the prisoner is uh, is known for. What I really like about this episode in the context of its fight scenes is that they don't really follow that feel or look. Mm. Uh, the fights are a lot more brutal. They're a lot more more in keeping with how they would appear in a Western. And also, they often have consequences uh, in terms of, you know, physical injury as well. I mean, the fights in this episode result in bruising, blood, real battery. They're a lot more physical. And and this also leads on to the fact that I get the sense that everyone involved in making this, notably McGowan, was really up for making a Western. Mm. Yeah. We spoke in uh, our episode about Do Not Forsake Me and My Darling about how there was a strange apathy that came across in um, (laughs) uh, McGowan's voiceover Mm. um, in the early part of the episode when he's walking around his flat, etc. It really sounded like he didn't want to be there and he wasn't impressed by what was going on. Here, everyone throws themselves into it. I think, I mean, it is documented that McGowan wants to make a Western, but I really feel that everyone everyone's in on it and everyone goes all in to make something which is completely in keeping with the projections of the American Old West in film. It's not like they were sort of trying to put something together that was, as we said earlier, a prisoner version. This is very much how brutal Westerns sometimes were. And it's at that weird crossroads. I mean, you mentioned the Sergio Leone Westerns, but it is sort of in a strange period where you've got, you know, the original westerns that would have started being made sort of in the 30s onwards kind of john ford style and then there's that strange transition which happens in the mid 60s well pretty a little bit earlier than that where you've got the italian spaghetti western which is more well it's 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 brutal it's bloody it's more raw it's about the lawlessness you know the original westerns made in the u.s were very much morality tales they were you know there was a clear good and there was a clear bad and there was you know there were sheriffs and and there were villains, and it was it was a very yeah. clear cut world. There were guys in white hats and guys in black hats, exactly. and that was it. <laughs> yeah. And then the spaghetti westerns bring in this 
whole grey area. You have anti-heroes, you have motives behind what people are doing that make things very confusing. And I think the prisoner sits in that world as well, um, because obviously the village would like to think that things are black and white. There is a good and there is a bad, and the village thinks it's on the good side and that people are unmutual and they're on the bad side. But also characters like Six are uh, non-conformist. They don't want to be held up to this simple good versus bad because they feel that actually things are more complicated than that. And I and I think this it's interesting that a show like The Prisoner would choose to enter the world of the Western because I think there is this switch in, in the very moral Western to the kind of grey area, amoral Western that was starting to de- develop. And it was happening right around the time this episode was being put together. Harmony. Never heard of it. Not many people have, senor. It's sort of exclusive. So am I. Where is this town? You'll find out, senor. It's not wise to ask too many questions here. Yep, so the gang grab the stranger and they cart him off to a town called Harmony. Yeah, and the shot of the people entering, I think it's shot on the MGM backlot. And it's got everything that would symbolise what a Western was in terms of the the cinematic vocabulary that would represent it. It's got wagon wheels, it's got the... It's got the buildings around a town square with evidence of like a blacksmith and a stable. It just feels like what that era would have been like, but using film language rather than probably real historical accuracy. The titles continue, coming up with guest stars Alexis Kanner, who has a very prominent box around his name. <laughs> yeah, and he will appear a couple of more times in the series as well. And he, I think he, I think the box was... Apparently he was very good friends with Magoon. Magoon was really impressed by his performance. And I think it's one of those things where Magoon was trying to give him a bit more emphasis. And uh, that probably also speaks to why he comes back again a couple of times. And I think in the 80s they were in a film together. Um, uh, Kings and Desperate Men. That's the, that's the one. So that's, yeah, so there's a, a film that Kanna directed and uh, Magoon is in. I think Kanna's in it as well, isn't he? But yeah. Is that the one about the, the hosted situation yeah. and the radio host? Yeah. At some point, we'll do all the Magoon movies. I don't know, somehow. Yeah. Um, but it's also the plot to uh, Alan Partridge Alpha Papa. <laughs> 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 Which, if you haven't seen... <laughs> you know what? Alan Partridge would make a very good number six. <laughs> um. Yeah, so uh, aside from Alexis Kanner, it also stars David Bauer, uh, who is an American actor. I think he was one of the actors who got blacklisted in the McCarthy era and he came to the UK and he ended up doing lots of um, these kind of ITC shows at the time. And also Valerie French, who is a British actress who had done other westerns as well. There's one called Jubal and one called Have Gun, Will Travel. Which I think was a TV show. Oh, it was a Western TV show? I think so. Yeah. So um, those are the three main people that we get who, as we will see, will have almost multiple different roles as the uh, episode goes on. So they dump him off the back of a horse in the middle of the town square, unconscious, and as he wakes up and looks around, he finds himself in a strange town, again mirroring what we would normally see in uh, the opening credits of The Prisoner as he looks around the village for the first time and wonders where he is. Then some kind of interesting credits come up. Um, <laughs> so Living in Harmony is credited as being from a story by David Tomlin and Ian L. Rakoff. 
And then after, and subsequently, it states that it was written, produced and directed solely by David Tomlin. Now, this is a very controversial credit. It stems from, as we said at the top of the episode, uh, McGowan needing to come up with uh, a few episodes to do uh, the last few that would make it up to the final 17. In this case, he put a call out to members of the crew saying, someone got any ideas? Uh, we'll talk about this a little bit in our interview, but Ian Rakoff came up with the idea of a Western. And McGuard wanted to make a Western, and they thought this would be a good way to do it. He puts a script together. I think whilst it's all being formulated, uh, McGuard is off filming Ice Station Zebra, which is why he wasn't in Do Not Forsake Me, Oh My Darling, that heavily. And the episode is uh, written by Ian Rakoff, but then over the evolution of the script-to-screen kind of transition, David Tomlin, who took a very commanding role in shepherding the series in McGowan's absence during the early part of the second production block, of which this is the second episode. He goes on to uh, obviously direct it, but he then took credit largely for sort of conceiving and writing the episode as well. Yeah, and I think it's, as you say, it's something that we'll get on to in the interview with Ian. But by and large, this does seem to be Ian's story and pretty much Ian's script. Yeah. Um, you know, evidently there were contributions that David Tumblr made. I think it's been documented in a few places that he had the idea of the cardboard cutouts at the end. But, uh, you know, as as we discuss with Ian that you'll hear next time, there are so many elements in this that came from not just Ian's own life, but also the Western comics that he was reading at the time, that you can you can see that, you know, by and large, this does seem to be Ian's story on the screen and really maybe the credit should have been the other way around. Yeah, and it's not the only time that Ian has been screwed out of a credit. Um, yeah, certainly. So, yeah, so his work with uh, Lindsay Anderson is very well documented, but he got less credit than he should have done on the on the fantastic movie If. And on Oh Lucky Man, uh, he got no credit when actually he should have got quite a significant one. Yeah. However, I, I don't want to detract from the fact that this is a wonderfully directed episode mm. of The Prisoner. It looks absolutely fantastic. I think um, I was reading that it took a lot longer to film than other episodes. I think they wanted to put a lot more effort into it to actually sort of realise the visual style and make it all kind of perfect. But yeah. it is beautiful. Yeah, according to Rob Fairclough's book, this episode took five weeks to make, whereas they were normally trying to make each episode in two weeks. Yeah, and it really captures... The, the feel of a cinematic Western, not a television one. And David Tomlin would go on to be a very, very successful first AD uh, working for, you know, George Lucas and, and Spielberg, etc. But a really notable aspect of this episode is it's often regarded as the first British Western. I'm not a TV or film historian, so I don't really know how true that is. I mean, I know that Doctor Who did an episode the gunfighters that would have come out before this, I think, but maybe not by much. And I don't know if there were other examples of British Westerns before this, but potentially this was maybe the most high profile and certainly the most successful version of a fully realised Western made by um, a British production company. Yeah, I think if the credits read, uh, written by Ian Rakoff, produced and directed by David Tomblin, uh, I think everyone would have been perfectly happy and it would have accurately reflected the you know the wonderful contribution that they clearly both made to making this episode happen but 
there will be plenty of time to talk about that in the next episode. So he meets a uh, character who's sitting by the water trough in the town square, who says, welcome to Harmony, stranger, in a slightly dubious Mexican accent. (laughs) Uh, And this is the same actor who played the gypsy character that Number Six meets in Many Happy Returns when he first arrives in what we find out is South of England. And uh, when the stranger says that he's never heard of the town Harmony, this guy replies, not many people have. It's sort of exclusive. So once again, we've got parallels with the village as a place that not many people would know about and not many people would ever find their way into. Yeah, we're still in the phase of the episode, which is recreating those opening credits. This is the bit where he's uh, kind of looking around out of his window almost, and Mm. he's seen he's uh, somewhere else. So it's interesting that they use significant elements of the episode to to tell the story of the prisoner in this format although that uh, that mexican character is straight out of a sergio leone movie i mean both in you know appearance accent and also dubious dubious stereotype as well yeah and uh, he says to him it's it's not wise to ask too many questions here uh, once again just like the village and advises him that maybe he'd like to try the saloon and you can hear in the background the uh, recognisable sound of uh, an out-of-tune piano doing that kind of uh, classic saloon old western style music that you uh, that you would find that that is you know an audio cue for the audience to know that there is a, a saloon nearby that's probably filled with slightly dubious characters like yourself for instance i'm not for hire you turned in your badge and my gun what were your reasons my reasons so he heads into the saloon. The uh, the music screeches to a halt. Everyone turns around to look at the stranger who's just walked in. Again, all these wonderful sort of movie cliches that that we'd expect. And standing at the bar is Kathy, uh, one of the um, hostesses at the uh, at the saloon, wearing an incredibly elaborate headdress. I mean, I'm sure nobody actually wore anything <laughs> like that. But in in film western terms then this you know this this is uh, what you'd expect and uh, she greets him and offers him a drink and says that for regulars the first drink is always on the house but when the drink is on the bar it suddenly gets shot out from underneath his hand by an unseen person but completely unflappable the stranger simply orders another whiskey picks it up off the bar and drinks it before turning around to see who's actually trying to get his attention. And that's the first moment, I think, where seeing number six as the stranger interact with people, it clearly is number six. So you know you are watching that character. Although we've transported the show into the world of a Western, as a character, he is unchanged. I think. And it has that same element again where he always seems to get drawn to a female character. And as the episode progresses, it's always clear that people use that affinity, that that sense of chivalry he has against him when they try to undo him. And when he turns around to see who else is there, first we see a shot of the figure we will come to know as the judge, Hmm. who's sitting at a table looking, you know, equally unflappable about what's going on and then he looks and he sees the character of the kid who is standing there with his gun drawn he's clearly the one who 
is a good enough shot that he shot the glass out from under his hand. And he's standing in a very striking um, red top and top hat. And the top hat motif is an interesting one because it's something that we associate with the village, but the people who wear top hats are either their undertaker figures, like the one who, who guesses number six in the opening credits, or the members of some of the various village committees, like the ones in the general who meet to decide what's going to be on the curriculum. But notably, uh, the similarity to the undertakers is interesting because they're also silent. Mm. And the kid is largely silent throughout the whole episode as well, which is good because I think Alexis Cannon gives, well, he's forced to give a a very physical performance i mean it's almost like a mime artist i suppose um but he 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 transmits a lot without having the ability to say anything for large chunks of the episode and i wonder if it's that strength as a performer that attracted mcguin to him i mean he's he's really the i mean he's a he's a completely psychotic character it appears as the episode progresses but you see that there's something off about him from everything his you know the way he the way he stands, all of his gestures, the way he looks at people, there's something not right about him. And he portrays so much without saying anything. Um, it's, a, yeah, it's a really strong performance in the episode. Yeah, and in the space of about 15, 20 seconds, they've used the, the language of Westerns to introduce three characters who, um, you know, in some ways inhabit archetypes that we would expect to find in Westerns and that the audience can immediately get a grip on all of them. So we've got you know, the, the woman who is the, the hostess, who could be a, a love interest slash femme fatale figure, but who is in a, a position in the town that clearly leaves her vulnerable to the power plays of the people around her. We've got the well-dressed guy, the older guy who's sitting at the table, who's unflappable, who is clearly going to be in charge of everything, is probably going to be a, a, a villain. And then we've got the the young psychotic gunslinger. And you feel almost immediately that you've got a handle on all of these characters straight away. But it also speaks to the prisoner itself. So although those are shorthand in the world of the Western, that is often something that's happened repeatedly in the prisoner itself. Mm. You have the judge who functions as a a number two style character. Uh, You have the kid who is the right-hand man, as is often the case. And then you have the female character, who is often, at least in the world of the prisoner, a lot more complex than than the standard love interest, but somebody who will be sort of the pinpoint for how the village will choose to manipulate number six, and somebody who ultimately, although working for uh, the village, starts to feel some sympathy for number six as well. Yeah. And the judge invites the stranger to come and sit with him and claims that he knows all about him <laughs> and that that's why he's here. Again, just, you know, it's almost a riff on the exchange that you would get in the opening credits of, you know, who are you, the new number two. We immediately get the idea that this is the number two figure in this town who's going to be in, in charge of everything. And, uh, yeah, he says, oh, I, I, I know all about who you are. And uh, the stranger clearly doesn't want to have any of it. But, but what I really like about this part is that the judge is playing patience on the table. 
which is a game that you play by yourself where you and you alone are manipulating the cards. Mm. You don't actually have any opponents. It's just you versus the cards as they fall. And in some respects, this is how some number twos view the village, that they are really the only ones playing the game and everyone else is the cards that they're moving around. Mm. So um, in this case, it's uh, cards replacing chess. Yeah. You know, which is how how that has been used as a as a metaphor in uh, in previous episodes. Yeah. And of course it's it's an episode that is otherwise largely without numbers. Uh instead people have what well, names that aren't really names like the kid, the judge, the stranger. Uh Kathy gets a name, but whether that's her real name, who really knows. But we do get references to numbers in the cards because as a playing patience, I think the stranger puts down the number two on the number three or something mm. like that, and then draws an ace, which is actually number one. Yeah, I, I don't, I don't know anything about the history of cards, but I've I've never seen playing cards that have a one instead of an ace. Yeah, but it's clear that by putting the one in, that's a that's something that's more referencing uh, the hierarchy of the village and the mystery of who number one might be. Um, I don't know if cards ever did come in a format where they replaced the ace with a one or maybe it preceded aces i don't really know so when he went over to speak to the judge he kind of blindsides and and punches the kid in the face um, knowing that he's the guy who uh who uh, shot the first glass of whiskey he had we then cut back to the kid who gets up almost robot like you know from having been knocked down he adjusts his hat and there's this moment where the judge is looking at the kid the kid looks back and it's clear that you know this is the hierarchy here. The judge is in charge. The kid works for him. He's got a bit of a grimace on him, almost like he's upset with with the kid. But also he explains the kid to uh, to the stranger as I don't know what was he. You know, what he's was he, sensitive. Yeah, overly sensitive. Yeah. And so it's you know they they're immediately well he refers to it almost as a flaw because he says but he's mean you know mm. and uh, it's clear that he wants a henchman who is emotionless and you know and able to you know to just carry out orders and this is the the seed of the problem with the kid but the judge is there to ask the stranger to actually work for him as well yeah so he says you know i I know you turned in your badge and the stranger says yes and my gun Mm. and when the judge asks what were your reasons he just replies my reasons yeah why did you resign (laughs) (laughs) But he wants the stranger to come and work for him as the sheriff in the town. But the stranger is not interested in uh, becoming part of the hierarchy in the town. He just wants to leave town and move on. And what does this say about other episodes? Because there are those ones when the village is trying to break number six. But this episode alludes to the other concept which sometimes comes up about the village trying to turn number six to their side as well i mean although he wants to find out why the stranger resigned or number six resigned he is trying to get him to work for him which is a different way of the village interactions with number six you know to kind of want to want six to work for them it shows that the value goes beyond the secrets in his head it's about the fact they would they want him to defect from whatever side he was before to the side of the village or in this case harmony yeah, because the judge asks him, you know, have you already taken a job with somebody else? Probing that that might be the reason why he, he gave up his position before. But he he just remains completely silent on the matter. 
um, and just kind of keeps rebutting questions with more questions and criticizing his grammar, which was really annoying. <laughs> <laughs> but he he just eventually decides to get up and leave, says he's leaving town. And as he leaves the saloon, he throws a coin down on the bar in between a bunch of goons who he's uh, clearly eyeballed up near the door uh, to pay for his drinks and puts the saddle on his shoulder and walks out. Yeah, and like those uh, tropes that you see in Westerns that we've discussed already, it's clear that, well, not only is Harmony corrupt, but this character, the judge, is in control of a lot of the bad elements. And so he's keeping the town and its citizens in check by force, which is obviously not something that you would anticipate number six would want to get involved in. You know, he's always on the side of uh, the oppressed rather than the oppressors. So he uh, goes out into the town square. First thing he does is try to buy a new horse to go with the saddle he keeps carrying <laughs> around. Don't have his old horse. Maybe it came with the job and he had to hand it back. <laughs> Uh, but he's told by the guy at the stables that the horses are $5,000, which I presume you wouldn't even pay for a horse now, never mind in the Old West. Yeah. But it's deliberately designed to uh, to make it unaffordable. It's not even a work credit situation. <laughs> I just wondered that he, if there was originally a line in the script where uh, you know, they say, uh, yeah, you handed in your badge. And he says, and my gun, but I kept my saddle. <laughs> and everyone just looks quizzically at each other <laughs> and then carries on. <laughs> So after realising that uh, clearly there are other people in the town who are in on not letting him leave because no normal businessman is actually going to try and sell horses for $5,000. He's clearly been queued up by the judge not to sell the Sky Horse. Uh, he starts walking through the square, which is when he's accosted by some of the other people who live in Harmony. And this is basically what happens in Arrival. You know, he turns up, he looks around, he realises in a strange place and he also comes to see that there are no obvious ways that you can get out. So he's going to have to think about something that goes beyond just getting any a mode of transport and going out. I mean, you know, at some point you kind of imagine that they would have had him buying a horse that was on a rope <laughs> that kind of goes around the town square and comes back to the start again if they really wanted to be heavy handed with it. Yes, yeah, local service only. <laughs> Or a donkey with like, you know, well, missing some legs, so it kind of sticking around the circle. <laughs> a wonky donkey. <laughs> and uh, yeah, the, the people of the town are clearly not happy about the fact that he's decided to leave. And they take this as a rejection of what they consider to be a good town and an insult to them. And uh, a bit of a mob starts to form around him as he tries to leave. And there are lots of echoes in this episode of other episodes that we've already had. And to me, this is a particular echo of a change of mind where you have a large group of people in the town who suddenly turn against him because he's doing something unmutual. He's trying to leave. He's rejected their little society that they've built and that makes him an enemy of the people in the village. Yeah, and later on in the episode, we'll come to see uh, strands of Harmony who reflect the people in the village who are there um, not of their own volition who are mm. trying to leave and maybe want to be on his side uh, when he tries to break out as well so it does it does reflect a lot of things that have happened in episodes of the prisoner up until this point 
So the mob sort of hassle him uh, on his way to the jailhouse. Uh, they're they're armed with guns, and he's just got a, a large stick of wood. I think at some <laughs> point trying to defend himself. And uh, they march, yeah, they march him off to the jailhouse, and the judge is already in there making himself some coffee. Yeah, which is a exactly the same as what would happen if uh, Six was meeting the new number two in the Green Dome. You know, tea being prepared by somebody. But unlike what happens uh, in a normal episode when six and two would meet, he doesn't offer uh, the stranger any tea or coffee. <laughs> so he just drinks it himself. And uh, the judge uh, sits down and he says that he's going to hold him in the jail. And when the stranger asks why, it's not because he's committed a crime, but he's there for protective custody. It's playing on the idea that the stranger has done nothing wrong, but he's still going to be held captive in harmony, which is very similar to how his retention in the village is, is portrayed as well. And because there's now a mob that's formed outside, uh, the judge decides that they don't want to disappoint the mob, so they're going to basically hand over someone who's already in the jail to the mob instead, so that they can, uh, I don't know, get the violence out of their system that they've decided mm. they want to mete out to someone. But it's also an example to uh, the stranger as well. You know, because the stranger is in is in the uh, uh, the judge's office in the jailhouse, where he um, is almost doing that thing where a number two would show six exactly what he's capable of. Yeah, and indeed, in Arrival, it's when Rover kills the guy who tries to run hmm. from the fountain um, when Rover is about, and everybody else is frozen. Hmm. And we cut to this really nice POV shot of uh, a guy who is removed from the jail cell who is uh, then sort of led out into this mob and he's lynched from a tree. Whilst this is happening, Kathy emerges. She reveals that actually the guy who is being hung from this tree is her brother. I think she even says he's done nothing wrong. Yeah, yeah. Um, so it's clear that what goes on in Harmony is a level of corruption which affects many people and other people have been maybe brought there as well, but certainly are being treated unjustly under the under the gaze of the judge or I suppose number two in this case. Yeah. And indeed if we if we go back to arrival again, um you have the part in arrival where is it Cobb mm. who uh, apparently is killed, but then later on we find out wasn't really killed and it was all a, a fake out. Yeah. But then um Cobb's uh, girlfriend who then joins forces with number six to try and get him out through the, the helicopter ruse using the electropass and the watch. Mm. In in some ways, it mirrors this, where he ends up teaming up with a woman who had previously been allied to someone who appears to have died early on in the story. Yeah. And it's, it's unlike, again, a, a televised Western, I think, because it's just so brutal. Mm. Yeah. I mean, you see them putting from the, from the POV shot you see the you know the noose going around the guy's neck um there's a mob which is completely unforgiving and it's not trying to shy away from any of the the brutality of the situation so i think it's it's unusual i think to put this on tv as well i mean it's a it's a very violent and realistic portrayal of what would have happened in this situation it doesn't shy away from that yeah so when this was first screened in the uk um obviously it was on ITV, an independent commercial channel that was split up into regions across the UK. And in some regions, 
this was aired after 10pm, <laughs> which was much later than an episode of The Prisoner would normally be aired, specifically because it was so violent. And in some regions, they um, cut parts of it. And this is one of the parts that was cut, this lynching, wasn't shown in some regions the first time that it was shown. Um, by the time you get to the repeats in the 80s on Channel 4, the whole thing was shown uncut. But back in the 60s, this was considered, in some regions, too brutal to put on television. And others, they just pushed it way after the 9pm watershed out to 10pm, when they figured only adults are going to be watching. And as an aside, it might be good just to mention that this episode was originally banned in the original screening of the show in the US. Yeah. And so, France, for that matter. And France. Um, I think the original... Well, the reason they gave at the time was to do with the references that are made later in the episode to mind-altering drugs, yeah. which is utter nonsense, obviously, because most of the episodes preceding this have used that as well. Um, <laughs> yeah, anyway. A, B and C, yeah. a, a, um, a change of mind. They've, yeah. all got, they've all got hallucinogenic or mind-altering drugs in yeah. them. You'd have to axe half the show if that was the real yeah. reason for not screening it. Yeah, in reality... Um, it's more likely to be due to uh, the stranger's pacifist stance, his refusal to take up a gun. This was around the time of uh, the American involvement in uh, Vietnam, and they just would not have wanted to portray uh, this kind of perspective on TV, especially one portrayed by the, uh, the uh, hero of the series as well, that he would reject violence and reject um, you know, carrying a gun in order to stand up against an enemy and certainly somebody who would do that out of principle to stand up for what they believed in as well. Yeah, and I suppose also you've basically got, you know, some upstart British production company making a Western um, with a, a apparently pacifist hero. And then, you know, obviously the, um, the judge figure was being played by a blacklisted actor mm. as well. Yeah. Um, I don't know if that had anything to do with it, but... Yeah, it, just, it was just completely axed from that original run in the US, but also in France as well. So there must have been reasons there. I don't know if it was just the level of violence or why the French network refused to show it. But ultimately, I think, you know, these these themes of um, the pacifist hero uh, who doesn't take up a gun, they would not have been lost in terms of their uh, political meaning by both Rakoff who wrote the episode, and McGowan. I think, I mean, this would have been one of those things where they're deliberately making a point, and I don't think they would, you know, I, I don't think they would have cared that the episode would have been banned in the US. You know, they you know, they made this show because I think they they felt it had uh, social and political importance when it could. And uh, certainly when we spoke to Ian Rakoff, he had a tremendous affinity for the episodes that that did try and... Uh, make statements on the current social and political context that surrounded what the village stood for uh, from his own perspective as well yeah and indeed um there's going to be a story that Ian Rakoff tells which I you know I will leave it for him to tell because he tells it infinitely better than I can recount it but it involves a point in his life when he was involved in anti-apartheid groups in South Africa where for various reasons he stopped carrying a gun around mm. and uh, I think that's uh, again a, a huge influence on part of what went into making this episode what it is. Uh, so the mob actually drags Kathy away as the horse is uh, jolted out from underneath 
uh, her brother. The stranger is watching this whole thing from the jail, which is interesting. And the shots they use of him are very reminiscent of the end credits because it's the first time we actually see McGowan's face behind behind bars in an actual episode. And that's obviously the closing image of every episode of The Prisoner thus far. Yeah. So the only people left in the jailhouse at this point are the stranger and the kid who's been left to guard the jailhouse. Mm. But the kid is drinking heavily and sort of clowning around, threatening almost kind of comic violence by pulling his gun, Mm. even though he's clearly not going to shoot, but, but trying to be intimidating in a way. I think it just shows how disturbed he is and potentially how in an environment as corrupt as the one in Harmony, the whole environment has just gone to hell, really. You know, the people who are enforcing uh, the judge's rules are not even doing it in a way that probably the the judge is happy with. It's, you know, it, it's lawless to the point where completely psychotic people are involved in meeting out justice. And I think that's something even that the judge refers to later on. I mean, he's this reference to him being overly emotional. I think also it's it's referring to the fact that, that the kid is is emotionally unstable. Um, and certainly as the episode goes on, he comes across as, I suppose, very sort of physically and sexually aggressive in the whole episode as well, which means that he, I mean, he's not a guy who's in control. And yet this is the person who the judge has chosen to be uh, in, you know, his right hand man and in charge of meeting out the rules that he wants to impose in harmony. Yeah. And the stranger sitting in the jail cell just casually lights a match against the bars, <laughs> lights a cigarette and uh, sits back on the bench with his hat down over his eyes. It's the kind of thing you would have seen Clint Eastwood do yeah. <laughs> in, in a Sergio Leone Western. It's a really nice shot because I think it just shows that they, that certainly Tomlin, he must have known a lot about the visual language of a Western to put all these things in. And so much is covered in just a 50 minute episode of the show to make it feel well and truly like a Western. You can contrast this to shows much earlier on, like uh, like Rawhide. There were different ways of doing westerns on television, and this is a very unique take, which lends itself more to that Sergio Leone style. And I do wonder if they ever chatted about this when they were both in uh, Escape from Alcatraz, hmm. Clint Eastwood and Patrick McGowan, um, and whether they actually had any thoughts on who had done it better. <laughs> so there's an interesting parallel here, I think, between the character of the kid and... Uh, for any of our listeners who have watched Twin Peaks of Return or, or listened through our, our Cherry Pie and Coffee episodes and the character of Richard Horn, you raised this when we were watching the episode just the other day, specifically with reference to the kid being called Kid. Of course, there's a, a scene in Twin Peaks of Return where Richard gets humiliated by a much more senior drug dealer in the in the drug trade that he's got involved in who keeps referring to him as kid and he gets so angry about this afterwards that he goes out and commits a, a horrible act of violence um, because he's almost sort of out of his mind with anger. But although Richard Horn is, is definitely far from silent, mm. um there you know, there are a lot of similarities in in their um kind of a- aggressiveness and their overly emotional state that leads them into acts of violence. And their response to the uh, belittling tone that is uh, bestowed upon them. Mm. They clearly have aspirations to be 
well, I think it's, you know, it's a very Western thing. It was like a man's world, wasn't it? Yeah. You know, everyone, you know, it, and I think to be referred to as, as the kid, I mean, it completely emasculates them in this environment. And he is unable to deal with that, I think. And I, you know, I do wonder if he is actually silent deliberately because maybe he just can't, you know, it's the anger which keeps him silent. He knows that he's been put in his place by this system and he just can't respond to it any other way, which is why his inability to express himself verbally often results in these sudden outbursts of, uh, of violence that we see throughout the episode. So later that day, Kathy arrives at the jailhouse and she's brought the kid a drink, um, even though he's already, you know, completely half-cocked anyway. Mm-hmm. And she flirts with him a little bit in order to distract him. She, I think she gets him to go find some glasses or something so that she can palm the keys while he's not looking. And uh, once he's got the drink and tries to kiss her, she makes her excuses that she's got to go back to work and uh, promptly leaves and goes, well, goes around the back of the jailhouse, knowing that the kid is going to get so blind drunk that he won't notice when she passes the keys through the window to the stranger. And a very nice uh, touch with the production design throughout the episode is not just the actual physical sets, but the details, like all the all the posters on the walls around the jailhouse and in the saloon, these kind of wanted posters. It just looks like a very expensive episode of The Prisoner <laughs> because they've gone to a lot of effort uh, to make all these little details work. Yeah, and, and in some ways it, it reminds me of the posters that they have around in some of the village buildings, mm. although they, those are a bit more motivational. <laughs> <laughs> And it's interesting when, uh, you know, the keys are being handed to uh, the stranger and you see the kid having another drink. And even in that moment, you know, Alexis kind of looks like he's going to cry. He's he's completely overwhelmed by everything around him. And, he, and it's that lashing out that comes from a failure to be mature enough to deal with anything. Yeah, he's kind of curled up in a chair. Mm. It's odd because you can't, tell maybe you know is he is he called the kid because he behaved like this or does he behave like this you know because because people call him a kid but certainly there's something that becomes inherently dangerous about somebody who is unable to emotionally deal with the environment he's in where he's clearly being manipulated by the judge who is fostering this level of um of instability in him even though he's fully aware that it's not something which is uh, you know, the right thing to do because no one can really control him. And as the episode goes on, there are lots of allusions to the fact that the judge needs somebody to control the kid. And yet at the same time, he's doing everything he can to rile him up. And certainly you can just see him when he's interacting with Kathy. He doesn't know what to do. He's in love with her, but he has no way to connect with her and probably any woman as well. He just looks like you know, like a kid in his interactions with every adult in, in Harmony. So he just seems very out of place and lost, even though, you know, if you give somebody like that a gun, these are the consequences um, that will take place. And it shows just how that lawlessness can lead to, you know, the reckless side of controlling an environment as well. You know, it's never the case that in this episode, the judge is in control of Harmony, although he thinks he is. 
it's it's descended into a hell really for its citizens who are on you know on the right side and you know the judge is just looking for a way to maintain uh, some order there which again is very much like what happens in some episodes of the prisoner when a number two is in over their head they keep throwing throwing resource at the problem but they never get to the root of it so the stranger waits for the kid to fall asleep and promptly uses the keys to waltz his way out of the jailhouse and he goes to the stables and steals one of the five thousand dollar horses <laughs> in order to make his escape and on his way out kathy is out there to meet him and tells him that there's only one way out of town which is due north so first we see the stranger ride off uh, into the night hoping to make his escape and then back in the jailhouse, the judge arrives to find the kid fast asleep and the stranger gone. And when the kid wakes up, his first instinct is to draw his gun. And then he realises that it's the judge. And obviously he can't shoot, can't shoot his boss. <laughs> and the judge slaps him twice round the face, which the kid almost seems to know is coming. Yeah. So this has clearly happened before. Uh, but the kid just stands there and takes it as he hits him. And it's a bit like at the end of Free For All where Rachel Herbert's number two, who's just been revealed as number two, slaps the still drugged number six around the face saying, what, tick, tick, yeah. tick, tick. It's, it's exactly that because he's, there's something quite paternal about the judge in relation to the kid. And, you know, there's moments when you're watching something and you kind of imagine a backstory for this, mm. you know, you, you kind of wonder if the kid is like some orphan who's been raised by the judge and almost raised to be his attack dog. Because when you say the kid expects it, it looks like somebody who has done something wrong and he knows his father is going to, you know, beat him or something as a result of that. I mean, there's something like he's a, you know, he dishes out um, violence and abuse, but one gets the feeling that potentially he's the victim of it as well from the judge who is treating him like a dog who he's using as his attack dog for everything. Um, so, so there's a strange element that, that comes in here. It's not, it's not there to evoke any sympathy in the kid, but it, it reveals a little bit more about the nature of that relationship and potentially why the judge doesn't really let the kid go. I mean, he, he treats him like a son, but he doesn't, but not as a relative. He treats him as you know somebody who he can use. And the kid comes across as somebody who's been used. And the fact that he's referred to as the kid is something which is designed to keep him in his place the whole time. Um, and that's coming potentially from a, a father-like figure in the judge. Yeah, so meanwhile, the stranger, believing he's making his escape, uh, is going through the pass, which is apparently the only way out of town, when he gets grabbed by guards who are waiting, guarding the pass, mm and basically lassoed to the ground and dragged back to harmony behind the horses, which is another classic Western trope. And also a prisoner trope as well. Yeah. Because it's almost like there's moments uh, which have happened where the prisoner sees a way out, whether it's by helicopter or by boat, but ultimately he's walked into a trap uh, orchestrated by the village and he gets brought back very quickly. Mm. I think it happened in uh, Schizoid Man in the helicopter. And also in... Uh, checkmate when he's getting away by boat and then you know peter wingard's face appears in the monitor um and reveals that you know the whole thing is is under the control of the village the whole time as well 
And when he gets dragged back to the village square, uh, the kid is sitting by the water trough watching. He's clearly been kicked out of the jailhouse. But the guards who've grabbed the stranger don't take him to the jailhouse. They take him to where the judge is. And the judge is in the Silver Dollar Saloon. Yeah, which is now going to function as a as a kangaroo court. Uh, one which we haven't really seen since the episode Dance of the Dead. Yes, which... which involved everybody dressed in historical fancy dress <laughs> which we kind of have now yeah uh basically putting together a kangaroo court that turns out not to be for the stranger himself who is only in protective custody but for kathy for helping him to escape yeah and very explicitly this is about the judge trying to manipulate the stranger by appealing to his sympathy that he often shows towards female characters in the village. I mean, um, it's him saying, I brought you here to kind of view this trial, but it's not you who's on trial. It's the woman who he clearly knows was involved in helping him escape and using her as an example to get the stranger to agree to do whatever he says, um, which has which has happened before. Yeah, and before the kangaroo court can get into session properly um this character who i'm not sure what the character's name is but he's the, the guy with the mustache and the blue shirt basically. it narrows it down thanks yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um he's a guy who will later on offer to help the stranger to clean up the town mm. and he interrupts and says look why are you putting her on trial when you've just said that he was in protective custody and therefore didn't do anything wrong in escaping. And the judge says, well, she didn't know that. Mm. So she thought she was helping someone escape who was a criminal, even though in reality it was perfectly okay for him to walk out because he hadn't been arrested for anything at all. And it's clear that there are factions within Harmony who are questioning sort of the higher authorities, but they're often shut down pretty quickly, which happens in the village as well. Yeah. But this guy's now clearly marked himself out as someone who dared to challenge the judge and uh, get in the way of proceedings going, you know, essentially getting in the way of the judge's game of patience where he's moving the cards around and he knows where he wants them all to end up. Um, And what he wants is for Cathy to be found guilty. And sure enough, that's exactly what happens when the jury stream back out again. And the the men who, I think, are they the same men who later on are kind of his posse who are I think so. Um the jury foreman isn't, but I think a lot of them a lot of them are and some of them may have been involved in that initial scrap at the beginning of the episode as well. Mm. So they find her guilty and the judge says that he's gonna pass sentence later. But for now they take her to the jailhouse. And there's a look that happens between the stranger and, and Kathy where he clearly I think his eyes kind of follow her out as well. And, and it's almost like he's against his better judgment. He immediately gets drawn into a situation where he feels compelled to help her. He's also now going to compromise himself a little bit by deciding that there is a way that he can potentially save Kathy, which is why there was a window of suspending her sentence in order to see whether uh, the stranger would strange, would change his mind about uh, working for the judge yeah so, so the judge says explicitly you know if you'll work for me i'll let her go but he still doesn't want any part of it but the kid is outside and he's he wasn't in the saloon when the 
trial happened, but he's watched them take her to the jailhouse from outside. And now that the saloon is almost empty, he comes in and the stranger is sitting at the end of the bar. And you get that wonderful shot as the kid puts a gun down on the bar and and slides it all Mm. the way to the other end of the bar to him. Yeah, wonderful camera work and a very kind of, again, a shot which just fits with, you know, that feel of a Western as well. So the kid stands there, you know, ready to draw his own gun, but the stranger doesn't pick up the gun that's been offered to him. He he doesn't want any part in this shootout. So uh, the stranger is standing stock still by the bar, and at that point the kid kind of amps up his challenge by uh, shooting in his direction twice. The first time kind of grazes his hand, and the second time it grazes his face. And this is one of the few occasions, we've seen it a couple of times in the show, where they actually show blood. Hmm. Um, obviously, it's bright red paint. <laughs> um, but, uh, it's almost as red as uh, the kid's shirt. Yeah. But he does, he, does, uh, he does injure him. And it's these, it's these things that add an element of realism to, uh, to the show that isn't usually seen in the violence di- uh, displayed in The Prisoner. I mean, people have chairs thrown at each other and they get into proper fist fights. And no one ever really gets injured. You know, you know, the next scene, everyone's fine and walking away. But here, the injuries persist. You know, the cut on his face, it's there for the rest of the episode, interestingly. Um, you know, which, is in, well, which is quite strong for a show where sometimes continuity went a bit awry. <laughs> <laughs> so the judge then emerges back into the saloon and stops the, uh, the shootout before it can happen. I'm sure he probably heard the, heard the gunshots and came over. Yeah. yeah. And he tells the kid that he can have his old job back at the jail. Has clearly been fired in the meantime for being drunk and asleep on the job. So the kid reluctantly heads back out to uh, the jail and away from the confrontation with the stranger. And the judge very pointedly tells the stranger that the kid is very fond of Kathy and can be a bit over affectionate. And when the stranger replies that if anything happened, it will be paid for, he says, Well, nothing could happen if you were the sheriff. And this is the thing that finally gets a stranger to accept the badge, if not the gun, in order to take up the position of sheriff so that Kathy will be let go and nothing can happen to her that night. This is slightly reminiscent of, for example, the Chimes of Big Ben, where believing that Nadia is a fellow prisoner and uh, you, you, you have that scene where she's in the room with the electric floor and uh, seemingly tries to um, get herself electrocuted by when she doesn't leave the room. And number six agrees that if they will let her out, then number six will start to take part in village life a little bit. He'll enter the art contest. <laughs> and obviously in his mind, he's got an ulterior motive for this because he's planning to build the boat and get out. But it's a semi-compromise because when number two says... You know, you'll you'll you know you'll collaborate just because of this. And he says, "No, I won't collaborate, but I will join in a little mm. bit," um, which is what he's agreeing to do here. He'll join in only to the extent he needs to, in order to keep a lid on things. But he's not going to do what the judge wants him to do. What's nice is that the deal is that he'll wear the badge, but as number six, he never did. Yeah. You know, so it's a. It's a it's a parallel to what we're seeing because here he you know he'll wear the badge but not the gun. Um, in the village, he refused to wear the badge a lot of the time, and much like in Free for All, 
he gets told that by being part of the hierarchy, he can actually influence things. And maybe that's kind of a similarity we're seeing here. I mean, maybe, he, you know, here he's trying to see whether by taking up this role, he can perform it, but not on the terms that the judge would like, but kind of do it in his own way. And, and, and the first step of that is bringing law to the place as a sheriff, but not needing to use violence to uh, to get what he needs or carry out acts that the judge simply wants to do arbitrarily. But enough of that. We don't want to start off on the wrong foot. You grow to like this job, it's most rewarding. No, Sheriff, you won't regret joining my outfit. No, you may. You're just sore for the moment. Here, put this on, you'll feel better. Nothing but the best. Agreed to wear the badge, but not the gun. Yeah, so back in the jailhouse, the judge orders the kid to let Kathy go, much as he would like to continue sitting, staring at her as she paces up and down inside the jail cell. Um, the kid clearly isn't happy about this, but he has to do what the judge tells him to do. And the judge is looking over the whole thing, and he says, uh, you'll grow to like this job. You won't regret joining my outfit. But the stranger says, you may. <laughs> <laughs> and again, it's... It's that element of the village often thinking that they can control number six. But in reality, six is, you know, he's lightning in a bottle. <laughs> you know, you can't contain him and you can't predict what he's going to do. And certainly, even if he says he's working for you, he always has an ulterior motive that often the village doesn't see. And I think we're seeing that about to play out in this episode. So after giving him the sheriff star, the judge then offers him a very shiny, swanky-looking gun to wear, and the stranger turns it down. He says, no, I agreed to wear the badge, but I'm not wearing the gun. And as he uh, leaves the jailhouse, he comes across the character uh, Zeke, Yeah. who's uh, obviously a bad guy. He's got a black hat on. <laughs> yeah, and uh, Zeke says, oh, I don't carry a gun either, but then I don't need one. <laughs> and what begins is probably the the biggest mass brawl that you find in any episode of The Prisoner. Mm. It's very it's very well choreographed, this whole thing. Um, it must have taken a while to shoot. But yeah, first it's The Stranger versus Zeke. And then when it's clear that Zeke isn't getting the better of him, other people decide to just join in as well. Mm. And again, the judge is just watching this whole thing, trying to see whether any of this is going to result in the stranger deciding that he does need to take the gun and it's interesting that literally on he just feels he needs to carry a gun and he knows that it's a it's an issue of principle if he can get six to carry a gun he has beaten him in some way but there's no real reason why six needs to carry one in a strange kind of way it's, it's a battle of wits to see whether he can get the stranger to do something he wants him to do that the stranger resolutely does not want to do it's you know, that is the element of breaking him here and the stranger is obviously a man of principle like number six and he simply refuses and he will get through this fight and he'll take a good beating as well whilst <laughs> doing it but he uh is doing it in resilience as well you know he'd he'd rather stand and fight than uh than use a gun at any point yeah, and the sheriff at one point just sort of wanders into the saloon to uh, meet up with a few drinking buddies mm. and says to them, oh, the boys are just teaching him it's not safe to walk around without a gun. Mm. He doesn't even bother sticking around for the rest of the fight. 
But meanwhile, outside, the stranger is taking an absolute kicking, but still getting back up again. And it ends with him uh, lamping one final guy out and then dunking him in the water trough in the middle of the square. Yeah, And it goes back, I think, to Ian Rakoff's early experience when he worked in anti-apartheid groups as well, because this is very much an issue of carrying a gun being a sign of conformity as well. And him realising that, well, he's told by people who he's with that actually it's something that he shouldn't do because the consequences are, are far greater than he can imagine. And I think we're all, although that discussion doesn't take place in the episode, it's uh, it's clear that not taking the gun is a is an issue of principle, not just for him, but for everyone around him as well, because carrying a gun has consequences that the stranger can see. And you wonder if it's because of some other experience as well, because at the beginning of the episode, he does hand back his gun, so he had one before. Mm. But he's learned from that, and he doesn't want to live that life anymore. So although he's happy to, well, not happy to, but he's willing to take up the role of sheriff with the badge, the gun is completely out of question. Yeah, and in fact, this big fight scene with Zeke and his goons, uh, this was also part of what was cut in some regions when it was originally shown in the UK mm. because they felt that this whole fight sequence was too brutal. Mm. And uh, and so again, some of the ITV regions edited bits of this fight sequence out um, in order to broadcast it on UK television. Mm. And it's a fight about him not having a gun. You know, that's what the fight itself is about. Mm. So, you know, you can see why this would not have sat well with the view that this was anti-Vietnam propaganda. I suppose, by American networks who would have said it's not something we want to promote on television at this time. How to make a pacifist statement by throwing several dozen punches over the course (laughs) of two minutes is is remarkable in that respect. So the stranger goes back to the jailhouse to clean up after Mm. the fight and Kathy follows him there to find out how badly he's hurt because she saw the fight go on. They talk about whether or not he's going to try and leave again. And he says that the last time he left, he was brought back again and he can't refuse that kind of hospitality, <laughs> which is a polite way of putting it. Um, and Kathy tells him that she'll be in the saloon that night if he wants to come by and reminds him that regulars get the first one on the house. And this reference to regulars and sort of trying to make him a regular in the saloon, mm. it's it's a bit like the way the village is continually trying to get number six to settle down Mm. in the village you know get his work credits go to the cafe take part in the art show um you know become part of village life if you become a regular you know why not become a regular come and get a free drink and uh join everybody else Mm. in in the town and there's a sense of it being safer for everyone involved if he just conformed Mm. you know why won't he just do that and everything will be fine um, which obviously he refuses to do because he refuses to uh, to conform to whatever the village is, is trying to do and certainly hear what uh, what uh, Harmony is is trying to do to its, its uh, people. And in this scene on the wall behind him, there's a, a couple of posters. One is a sort of $1,000 reward for, for some ne'er-do-well mm. 
who presumably if you caught five of them, you'd get a free horse. Uh, but the other one very proudly proclaims that the bishop is coming. <laughs> and that I think it's something like, let us all come and hear the bishop, or I can't quite make some of it out, even on the Blu-ray. But yeah, it does It does make me wonder, who is the bishop and why is it so exciting that the bishop <laughs> is coming to town? Uh, but there we go. So then we cut back to uh, the saloon, and Cathy has gone there from speaking to the stranger at the jailhouse. And she flirts with a regular who comes to the bar. And I think uh, at that point, she's being watched intently by the kid the whole time. So she's obviously working as a hostess there. And you see the kid uh, slowly take a cigar, a lit cigar out of his mouth, walk very calmly up to uh, this guy and burn it against the regular's neck. This must have been cut from the original broadcast. I mean, it's, it's ridiculously violent to show somebody putting out a cigarette on somebody. Yeah, and it shows the kid's inability to accept even what Cathy's job is. This is clearly part of her job, that mm. she flirts with the people in the bar and gets them to buy drinks. Mm. Um, but he can't cope with it. He can't separate his um, twisted affection for her from the fact that this is what she does. Mm. And so he he becomes stupidly jealous of the fact that she's even having this interaction with this guy, even though anyone from a you know an objective perspective would know, well, it's her job to flirt, and that's the only mm. reason she's flirting with him. Mm. And you know, it, it's that possessive jealousy of you know wanting to literally possess a person so that nobody else can be anywhere near them. Yeah, because up until this point as well, he hasn't shown um, overtly direct violence towards Kathy. It's been aimed at those around her. Now, obviously, that changes throughout the episode, and there is an undercurrent of it up until this point. But it's interesting that he, you know, he sees Kathy as his, just like you say, and his immediate response is to harm people around her to keep them away from her because she is his in his mind. Yeah, and and clearly everybody in the saloon knows that he is psychotic because as soon as he does this, everyone just clears out the way. <laughs> so, you know, backs to the wall, get out of the way of whatever's about to happen. And the guy who he has put the, the cigar out on is, you know, almost literally quaking in his boots about what's going to happen. <laughs> and Kathy tries to intervene, but the kid just sort of brushes her to one side and stares this guy down. Even though the guy pulls his gun first... He's too afraid to do anything. Mm. You know, everyone is so scared by this guy that he he won't take the shot, leaving the kid every opportunity to draw his own gun and shoot him dead in the middle of the bar. Mm. Yeah, and as the kid is kind of looking over the situation, everyone looks at the kid like they know that there's something wrong with him. And as he turns to leave, we see the stranger appear, obviously now in his role as sheriff who opens the saloon doors. The people kind of are gathering around the body and say that, you know, it's the sheriff's job to, to sort this situation out. You know, the kid is out of control and the stranger is simply looking over the whole thing. So sort of getting a sense of how messed up everything is whilst you know, overlooking all of this is the judge up on like a, a mezzanine level in the saloon hmm. who is seeing that, I suppose, two things. One, the stranger is now being exposed to the kinds of violence that he wants him to be in the hope that he will create that, that well, he'll rile up something in, in the stranger that will provoke him to uh, serve his role and, and actually respond to the violence he's seeing by you know taking a gun and using violence himself. 
but also he's you know he's looking over it going this is a situation which i'm orchestrating it's almost like he's um a puppet master mm-hmm. who's like you know up on up on another level pulling all the strings like of all these marionettes down in the saloon and he's manipulating the whole situation i mean it looks really good that he's kind of up on another level but that's the way i see it. I mean, he's it's like with the game of patience earlier all these things are about the judge manipulating everything as much as he can on all sides the stranger is well much like we know number six he's not quick to respond he's never impulsive mm. he kind of surveys things and then he's like you know what this is something i need to think about because he's he's probably also always cautious of the fact that there is a subtext to it that is never visible at first at first glance yeah because in a game of patience you are the only person who can win mm. you know that the cards can't win mm. You can win or you can lose the game yourself, but nobody else can win because ultimately you're the only one who gets to play. So he's trying to line all of these people up in these perfect rows exactly as he wants them so that he can win the game. But effectively, you know, there are other people in the game who can win and he, he clearly doesn't feel that that's possible. <laughs> he He feels that he's the only person in control and therefore, as long as he plays the game right, he will win. And during that whole sequence also, everyone's looking at each other, but no one's looking at the judge. Mm. You know, they're all, they're only seeing it at at that level. Then, you know, they're not aware of how much they're being manipulated. But the fact that the stranger doesn't respond implies that he's aware that he shouldn't get involved. Yeah. And what I like is that it's the guy with the moustache and the blue shirt again, who stands up and says, actually... The other guy drew first, which is true. He drew his gun first. The kid drew second and was therefore technically defending himself, even though he had previously you know, attacked this guy. He didn't draw his gun first, which is mm. true. So this blue-shirted guy does seem to be very fair-minded mm. in his dealings with everyone. This is the same guy who stood up for Kathy during the trial. And uh, as soon as the kid has left, he's the one who says, look, Sheriff, you're the sheriff. You're supposed to do something about this. So you know, although he's not a big character, he's kind of oddly um, almost kind of like a, a voice of the chorus of the people of the town who are expressing the, the sort of dire situation that they find themselves in, where they can't really affect any change. A bit like another villager who might get caught up in things in the way that some of the villagers in Checkmate did. So now we're back at the jailhouse and... Uh, the stranger is, I don't know, sitting behind his desk doing some paperwork and things. And the guy with the moustache and the blue shirt, and we really should have learned his name, (laughs) um, he turns up and he is there to speak to the stranger and actually not only ask him to clean up the town, a very Western kind of uh, phrase, Mm -hmm. but he also says that you cannot do it alone. And, you know, they can't do it. They haven't been able to do it. He can't do it alone. And there's a need to basically get the people who would support this to kind of work together to do it. Yeah. So again, it feels like that element of the village which forms a faction that is anti-village hierarchy, that wants to bring order back to the situation. The difference is, here this is a town that is now out of control, whereas the village itself is an isolated thing, which is something that belongs to the village. I mean, it's a startling thought to wonder if the village in the prisoner was originally something else and it's been taken over, which is a way you could actually read um, this as an allegory. But I think ultimately it's them saying they need 
him to start doing his job. But he, but they also understand he cannot do it alone, but there are people who are willing to help him within the village. Yeah, and in fact, he specifically says, you're the only one who's ever stood up to the mm. judge. So they view him as a potential leader and someone that they can build a positive movement around because he was willing to stand up to the judge. Um, but then in the very next scene, when uh, the blue-shirted guy is coming into the saloon, the judge is already in there, he invites him over to sit with him and explains that he's uh, very disappointed in his choice of friends <laughs> and wants to know what he was talking to the sheriff about. This is very telling because in the village you would have cameras and microphones everywhere that would pick up on people talking. If you think of something like Checkmate when Number 6 and the Rook were conspiring, if they knew that the mics were eavesdropping on them, they would talk in chess terms in order to disguise what they were talking about. Or they would try and sabotage the camera so that they could carry on doing what they were doing in secret. But how did the judge know that the blue-shirted guy had gone to see uh, the sheriff? And, and that they were talking. But how did Zeke know that uh, that the sheriff didn't carry a gun as well? Yeah, there's there's all these um, elements that imply that there is spying going on, even in Harmony. The people are watching each other. That somebody had seen him go into the jailhouse to talk to the sheriff. Or that someone was in there eavesdropping. Or, you know, I mean, obviously the bigger question is how many of these people are really real and how much is you know, this virtual reality experience is being piped into them. But it, it does create this sense of paranoia, even in a place that doesn't have any of the technology that we associate with paranoia now. Because now we might think about people, you know, listening in on your phone calls or spying on you with with video cameras. And indeed you know, even 50 years ago in, in the world of the village, that was what they were doing. There was always people listening. There was always people watching. There were cameras and microphones everywhere. But even predating all of that, you can create an atmosphere of paranoia where just individual people are spying on each other and you don't know who you can trust. And word can get back to the wrong people that you were seen in the wrong place, talking to the wrong person, and that's it. You know, you're done. <laughs> No, I completely agree. I, like we often talk about the prisoner as something that was very prescient when it came to discussing concepts of Big Brother and the surveillance state and all these things and how it would, you know, it got a lot of things right about the future as it was back in uh, the late 60s. But this episode also tells us about the prisoner itself as a concept that can be told as a story within a variety of frameworks and this uh, like you say it's it's almost like a primitive version of the story where you don't have that technology but the concepts still hold the ethos of what the village was doing can still be portrayed adequately in an environment without technology um, and it's that paranoia which makes the story so relatable and timeless i mean it can be told in any format and i think here it's being done as a western but the story of the prisoner is one that can be related in in any genre, which is potentially the power of uh, of the story. And maybe why in these last few episodes as well, you're going in a direction which really is 
blowing the concept wide open and in the direction of of what McGowan wanted, which is almost a mythical story mm. um, because you've moved out of the village a lot in these last few episodes. It's it's how you can tell the story in a in a different way, almost as a means to show how relevant the story is, you know, you know as a fundamental thing that is irrespective of how you present it. It doesn't need to be in Port Merion in the village. It can be anywhere. Yeah, because when the judge says, you know, he asks him, what were you talking to the sheriff about? He says, if you won't tell me, I'm sure you'll tell the boys. Mm. And his goons are lurking just uh, at the edge of the saloon, ready to pounce as soon as the sheriff gives the word to presumably beat out of him whatever it was he was talking Mm -hmm. about. Now, that could just as easily have been number two, calling in a, a group of white shirted hospital goons <laughs> in the village who are going to cart somebody off to have some horrible mind altering experiment done to them in the hospital to get them to give up what was in their mind <laughs> um you, you could you could transplant this into any area you know you could have you could have made a a medieval story in which in which they cart somebody off to the dungeons to a torture device you could make a sci-fi story in, in which they stick a probe into someone's mind mm. it, it works in any capacity where you have a story that is ultimately about corruption within the social hierarchy where the people who are in charge aren't answering to the people that they are doing any of these things to they're answering to somebody else and therefore they can do whatever they want in order to achieve the outcome that has been desired by whoever is really in charge. Jim, you disappoint me. Your choice of friends. Jim, old friends are the best friends. What were you talking to the sheriff about? Well, if you don't tell me, I'm sure you'll tell the boys. So, uh, the stranger is back in the jailhouse and he finds the blue-shirted Moustache man. <laughs> we should have come up with a shorthand for this. Um, uh, dead in his chair um, at his desk. And immediately there's a there's a slightly wild-eyed look in the, in the stranger where he knows he's going to do something. He immediately checks his gun in anger, but notably, or he checks it, he doesn't take it with him. And he storms out again, um, out the jailhouse and goes to the saloon. And there he finds Kathy who he's going to tell that uh, they have to leave. And the plan is that he's going to go and do something and he's going to meet Cathy on the edge of town. Yeah, so clearly he knows that ultimately this is a choice between staying and something very bad and violent happening mm. or leaving. And in some, it, it, it comes down to a question of, you know, do you become part of a system because you think you can change it for the better or do you walk away because you feel the system is so corrupt which might be fine for you but less fine for everybody else who is still stuck there because what does it mean if this the only person who's ever stood up to the judge leaves town Hmm. and doesn't do anything is he effectively saying well it's up to the other people who are there to do something about this because that's not his town and he's going to go or does he feel that the odds are impossible and therefore his only option is to go and to get Kathy out as well before something really bad happens to both of them? But there's an element also of, of 
white knight syndrome here. Yeah. <laughs> because he only wants to save Kathy, which is exactly what the judge wants. Hmm. So this is that point in a in a normal prisoner episode, if there's such a thing as a normal pri- uh, a prisoner episode, if there is such a thing as a normal prisoner episode, where uh, the pieces are being manipulated to ensure that Six starts to put into action a plan to escape in some way and take a selection of people with him. Mm. And this is also something which is being watched over by number two without Six knowing. So Six always thinks he's getting away with it at this point, but uh, number two is always aware of the plan. And so we're seeing the same story being told, but obviously it's it, it's done in a way which is you know, in a different genre, but you can see that the elements of, of the prisoner are, are truly here. Yeah, so the judge is watching all of this and he suggests to one of his cohorts that it would be terrible if the kid found out that the stranger and Kathy were chatting uh, so intently about something. Yes, yeah, so he's manipulating people around him who will then go and manipulate <laughs> the kid. I mean, it's, you know, this is somebody who who is the puppeteer in the whole thing. Playing patience probably at the time as well. For all. <laughs> um, but he's just trying to orchestrate all the people and put everyone in place in the hope that when it all goes down at the end, um, everything will go like dominoes, exactly as predicted in a certain way. It'll all fall down, it'll break uh, the stranger in some way. Yeah, so the stranger sneaks off at sort of dusk with the intention of taking out the men who are guarding the pass so that later on he and Kathy can ride out of town through the pass without being interrupted. And uh, there's a, a very unusual kind of rope swing-based attack that he does at one point. I don't know what was going on there, but evidently he's not got a gun with him, so he's improvising and finding other ways of taking out the goons who are guarding the pass. But we also know he's quite good with... Uh with ropes and wood and things like that from yeah. his time with his uh, his homemade gym <laughs> yes. in the village. So uh, I think it's just the same thing happening again. But uh, afterwards, once he's knocked the guy out, he takes his horse. So crucially, he now has two horses for both of them to get out of town. Yeah, and back in the saloon, Kathy is locking up, but she is confronted by the kid. Yeah, who has clearly been told that she was having too much of a conflab with the stranger, but the stranger is no longer around. So the kid appears and tries to kiss her, but she bites his lip. And you see this um, shot of this incredible bright splash of blood on his lip that's almost the same colour as the red of his shirt in the shadowy bar. And uh, this clearly sets something off in him. He starts stalking her across the saloon, and she tries to get out around the tables, around the bar, but there's no way out for her. And uh, eventually the kid catches up with her and strangles her. Yeah, this is almost too much for an episode of, of uh, like a standard ITC serial because it goes into a very psychological place, I think, of somebody who is clearly emotionally unstable confronting somebody after being manipulated into doing so but also being as we've said before unable to to deal with the feelings it stirs so the fact he kind of forces himself upon Kathy the fact that it becomes this very straight I mean the way it's all shot it's 
it's very strange it you know it's like the camera is kind of tilted all of a sudden you see shots of uh, of Kathy cowering behind things and running around but uh, all the shots of the kid are all full body shots uh, you just see him kind of standing up and kind of walking towards things in a very kind of emotionless crazy-eyed kind of way and you know it's not going to end well but the fact that they continue to show it makes it all the more upsetting it's not something where it cuts away at all it's just showing the reality of the violence rather than implying it and usually I think you would tend to allude to something in a in a Sunday afternoon or Sunday <laughs> evening drama. But here it's just all shown to show that, you know, the horror of the situation and how um, violent this act is. I mean, certainly we've grown to be very sympathetic towards Kathy, uh, not just as a person, but also because obviously we've seen her do her best to help the stranger out. So we've grown sympathetic towards her but we've also known that this confrontation would ultimately happen from the very beginning we knew that it was all being orchestrated in some way it reminds me of some of the stuff that appears in um, the Powell and Pressburger film Peeping Tom where there's somebody who is just completely unhinged going after somebody else and it just becomes horrifically violent it's the kind of unstoppable nature that the kid has at this point yeah, it, in in some ways it does more resemble a horror film yeah. in that scene rather than a western. Yeah, it racks up the threat of the kid to the point where, as an audience member, you know that you need the the polar opposite of him to finally put him down, which is why you're ultimately going to need a character like the stranger to decide that he is going to have to pick up the gun in order to... Uh, take out the kid for committing the unspeakable act of of killing off Kathy earlier on. Yeah, and in fact this was another scene that was um, censored by some of the regions that initially showed the episode in the UK. So the original episode was about 10 minutes long. <laughs> Pretty much, yeah. <laughs> so when the stranger returns to Harmony with both horses, he sees the kid slowly walking away um, from the saloon looking sort of emotionally drained, I guess. And he senses something bad has happened, and when he goes inside, all the lights are off, it's empty, and he finds Kathy dead on the floor of the saloon and uh, ultimately takes her outside and buries her in a, in a graveyard where you get that almost classic Western shot against the sunrise where you see the, the silhouetted crosses of the graveyard. And even with this... Uh, shot as well I think we've discussed it a few times how in in Arrival when number six is being taken up by number two for like this aerial introduction to the village they make reference to the to the cemetery there mm. and it's interesting that they have a graveyard here in uh, in Harmony which is being used to hold the bodies of of other townsfolk as well yeah in fact it's also um a callback in some ways to Hammer into Anvil, where the episode begins with um, the death of a young woman who either jumps or is thrown out of a window in the hospital. And the whole episode is geared around him exacting an elaborate revenge for what's happened. But there is that moment where he goes to the graveyard Mm. and sees her grave in particular as he's sort of carrying out his plan against number two 
in that in that episode it is specifically against number two mm. whereas in this it's effectively number two's henchman who is responsible but ultimately number two slash the judges because mm. he's manipulated this whole situation you aren't quitting while i've got kathy just get it clear you work for me guns and all haven't got kathy any longer she's dead so the stranger now suddenly has a lot more purpose in his in his steps i think he now knows what the eventual outcome of this is going to be so he returns to the jailhouse i mean obviously any any plan to escape with kathy is now gone and his response is to get revenge i like yeah i like the fact you call back hammering to Amber. it does feel feel like that but this is just a very shortened version of that of that whole experience because this is him exacting revenge in a in a very direct way rather than coming up with anything too too convoluted you know you know because he knows the person who did it he doesn't have to to you know, develop an elaborate plan yeah and he finally takes the gun yeah. from his desk that has been sitting there this whole time he puts it on and then he takes off the sheriff's badge before going outside so what's crucial is that he he won't wear both the badge and the gun because that's what the judge wants. And that's not what he... Because at the very beginning of the episode, you see him turning in both badge and gun. So that's not the role that he's going to play anymore, even if it's the role that the judge wants him to play. So when he reaches the point where he realises he has to put the gun on because somebody has to take the kid down, but he won't do that and wear the badge at the same time. So he's going out to face the kid, not as the sheriff, but just as a man. And so then as he's uh, leaving, he faces off against the kid who's standing opposite him. It's clear it's going to end in a in a proper quick draw showdown. It's beautifully shot here. I mean, it's just, you know, it's a standard thing of seeing both men standing opposite each other and then the hands kind of wavering around their guns. You know, they go for the shot in this quick draw. Immediately, you, you know, as you hear the shots ring out, it cuts to the kid who is standing there and he reholsters his gun after taking a shot, but then it's clear that he is the one who has been killed. In a strange kind of moment, he kind of flops to the ground, and it's almost like he goes from being this vibrant, lively, childlike character to immediately just falling on the ground and being completely stone dead. I mean, that's it's almost like the idea that the that the bullet immediately just zapped him of anything he's gone he's been vanquished in in the way that you know these quick draw things often play out in westerns they they're there to end end something definitively yeah but but also at the same time it, it's a that the sort of elaborate way in which he reholsters the gun afterwards <laughs> before just keeling over it's a bit like little boys playing cowboys and mm. shooting at each other or they're like oh i've been hit and then they and then they fall over. But it's not kids playing with toys anymore. Mm. It's it's real people playing with real guns, except it isn't, as we will find out very shortly. There are a couple of nice anecdotes about this scene in particular that are recounted in some of the books that have been written about the prisoner. I think it's Rob Fairclough's book, The Official Companion, recounts a story that apparently when McGowan was off shooting Ice, Ice Station Zebra, which was almost immediately before Living Harmony was made, 
because that's why he wasn't there for Do Not Forsake Me or My Darling, uh, he sent a telegram to Alexis Canna saying that he was getting quick draw lessons from Sammy Davis Jr. and Steve McQueen <laughs> <laughs> and basically challenging him a little bit. So Canna went off and had to uh, try and practice quick draw of his own because there was obviously a bit of a bravado competition going on between the two of them as to who was going to get the better of the other in what they both knew was ultimately going to come down to a, a quick draw between the two of them. They clearly both had a bit of an ego going on. Mm. Um, so even though the story had to end with the stranger defeating the kid, uh, according to Alexis Canner, he got the editor to slow the film down in order to show that the kid shot first. <laughs> <laughs> uh, he kind of claimed that the kid, him, shot in nine frames and the stranger shot in 11 frames so that he was two frames ahead of McGowan according to Kenner that is <laughs> so he managed to do that and still get asked back to come in other episodes as well yeah <laughs> <laughs> uh, but that also Kenner had separately said that that motion that he does in replacing his gun uh, in the holster before killing over and dying uh, Kenner had said was a reference to Burt Lancaster in the film Vera Cruz, <laughs> which I haven't seen, but I would be very interested to see a clip of him putting his gun back in the holster before dying. So the stranger returns to the silver dollar and he grabs a drink and he's sitting down. But then uh, the judge marches in through the saloon doors. The judge is really happy that the stranger has killed the kid now. So... Again, there was all these references to the fact that he, he felt the kid was out of control as well. And he obviously believes that the stranger has done this in the context of working for him. He doesn't realise, I suppose, at this point that he's uh, he's not actually the sheriff. Yeah, he, that he's he, taken the badge he's off. He's taken the badge off and he had the gun. I mean, he feels that he has, he has beaten the stranger by getting him to take up his gun against somebody. You know, and, and it's something that he's orchestrated and he feels he's got one over on the stranger. But in reality, you know, the stranger then tells him, actually, that Kathy is dead, you know, and the kid killed her, which is why he then had to go after the kid and, and shoot him. Now, this obviously confuses the judge who feels that something has clearly gone too far because he obviously wanted the kid to be a trigger that would cause the stranger to... Uh, to put on the gun. To put basically. on the gun. Well, I suppose in the village analogy, that level of the... Number two, putting things into a plan that getting out of control, you know, is exactly what's happened here. It's clear he knew that the kid was unstable and now he's put him in a situation where the kid has gone too far. The kid has killed Kathy, although it has triggered the outcome of, uh, of the stranger taking up the gun. It's not in the context that he would have wanted, actually, because, yeah. you know, because obviously now he's basically saying, I don't work for you anymore. This has nothing to do with you. This is me exacting justice, which is something that, you know, the judge, ironically, being called the judge, is obviously not interested in. Yeah, because the, the, the judge wanted him to be forced into a violent confrontation with the kid that had to result in the stranger using a gun because that would be the only way to take the kid mm. out. Uh, but he had banked on Kathy still being alive and using Kathy as leverage to keep the stranger working for him as sheriff not realising that the kid would go so far as to actually kill Kathy, thereby removing any leverage he had over the stranger. And he hadn't anticipated the stranger initiating this confrontation because he he doesn't have anything left to lose, mm. effectively. And 
I really love the touch that when the stranger walks into the saloon, he sits down at the table that has the cards sort of sprawled out, higgledy-piggledy. Some are turned one way, some are turned some some are turned face up, some face down on the table. There's no um there's no nice, neat game of patience going on. The, the the cards are just dumped on the table in a mess. And the judge isn't there, but that's the judge's table. Because mm. it's the table with the cards. And the stranger goes and sits down at the judge's table knowing the judge is coming and effectively waiting for him and saying, Yeah, I'm already at your table. The cards are all over the place. What's going to happen now? And the judge, as with most uh, number twos who realise their plan has not gone perfectly, has a backup, which is basically, well, I don't really care. You still work for me. Um, I don't care what's happening. Yeah, it may not have gone the way I planned, but there's that hubris again of thinking, well, you know, I still got the outcome I needed. You know, I still have, have you under the thumb. Now, the problem is the stranger is not going to tolerate any of this. And so when the goons belonging to the judge all rock up, I think there's four or five of them, there's a there's a lovely little shootout scene as the stranger moving his way around the saloon is able to take out all the members of uh, the judge's posse, I suppose. He shoots them all, hiding behind things, some of them fall downstairs. It's absolutely crazy. But again, it's beautifully choreographed stuff. Uh, people going through windows. I mean, it's all it's got every possible cliche you would see in a western shootout all in you know all in this 30 second fight scene but when they're all defeated you see the stranger uh kind of staggering around and that's when the judge then turns on him and shoots him repeatedly it, it feels like the judge ultimately playing the ace that was up his sleeve mm. the entire time which is his own authority over everything because he, throughout this he has treated the various characters in this charade that's been going on as cards and he's run out of other cards to play um you know he 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 treated Kathy as a card to play rather than a human being and when she was taken out of the equation by the kid he didn't treat this as a horrible murder that takes place he treated it as a card that's been taken out of his hand that he can't play anymore because that's all these people are to him they're cards in the game that he is playing. They're not people. They're just, you know, they're not pawns on a chessboard this time, but they're his cards. And the kid is no longer there. So his his best gunslinger has gone. And one by one, as the stranger takes out all of his other cards, the rest of the gang that he had ready to take him out, he's got one more card up his sleeve. He's got one ace up his sleeve, which is his own gun. And his own power as a judge to step in and, and, you know, as number two would and say, right, enough of this. Somebody call Rover. I'm, hmm. I'm taking back control of this situation. So after being shot, you see the stranger kind of grab the sides of his head and he falls back. And then there's this cut to number six, clearly. And we know it's number six because he's dressed in his usual village number six attire lying on his back again his hands clasped around his head on the floor of the set of the saloon and he's got uh, headphones um, around his ears he's got like a microphone as well and he's just in an empty environment and he's got no bruises on his face at all yeah. in stark contrast to the very visible bruises that the stranger had yeah and he looks 
ahead of him and he sees the judge standing there. But as he lunges towards the judge, we realise that it's actually a black and white cardboard cutout of the judge. It's a remarkable moment. It's like the whole thing is just folding in on itself. And he knows something has completely gone awry here. He runs out of the uh, of the saloon and he looks on the floor and he picks up a, a black and white cardboard cutout of the kid, kind of like in the kind of sprawled position that he was when he shot him. Uh, we then see a horse, which is not in black and white, it's in colour, mm. um, which is, again, a, a cardboard cutout just placed outside. And we realise that he's he's in a set, almost, of a town called Harmony, where the people, uh, the judge, the kid, they're represented here as, as cardboard cutouts, almost like they would be avatars in a computer game. The feeling I always get watching this bit is when he gets shot by the judge, it feels like that moment that would usually happen in an episode of uh, of The Next Generation hmm. where somebody would say computer end program in the holodeck. <laughs> you know, it's that kind of feeling of of the simulation kind of falling apart. Hmm. In this case, he's in a real physical environment, but it appears that nothing around him that he's been interacting with him has been real, as it were. So he runs away from Harmony, seemingly. There's a lovely moment when he's he's in the... Of the town, but there's a, a bit in the music where you hear the swell of sort of village parade music, mm. and then it drops out again. You're back in the in the kind of western music that's been playing throughout the episode, and as he kind of staggers around, he carries on running, and he realizes he's on top of a a hill almost, and he looks down and he sees that he's looking down on the village. Yeah, so the whole town of Harmony has been built just on the periphery of the village itself. And everything that he's been experiencing has been some kind of hallucination that has been enhanced by a physical set that they've built around him. So rather than an A, B and C where they use a, a computer to project into his mind the idea that he's at Madame Angeline's party and then um, at, at one point they use a microphone to influence what the people in the party are saying to him this has gone a stage further where they've built a, a physical environment for him to be in and have pumped him full of similarly hallucinogenic drugs to the ones that he had in, in A, B and C, but to the point where he's interacting with cardboard cutouts and believing them to be real and he's having uh, dialogue fed into him through headphones. It, you know, it, it, it's virtual reality in a real place it's it's an immersive experience it's an immersive game mm. it's it's a, a gigantic escape room <laughs> turned bad uh, it, it's an it's an incredible sci-fi concept for a show from 50 years ago mm. you know predating all the cyberpunk stuff about what is real and what isn't in immersive video games it creates a real place for somebody to be immersed into it predates um Red Dwarf, Back to Reality, all that stuff. It's, you know, it's one of the the foundations of that kind of science fiction idea. I think. I mean, it predates um, Westworld, doesn't yeah. it? Yeah, I think Westworld came out, oh, early seventies. Mm-hmm. I think. But again, that concept. I mean, I, you know, you just kind of wonder exactly where, well, whether Michael Crichton would have seen something like this mm-hmm. and thought, ah, this is kind of a cool idea. I mean, going back to the idea that it, you know, it's a prescient concept that's obviously been over-egged 
in many different um, films and TV shows since. I mean, I like the fact that it also skips over that horrible point in the 90s when VR, like in reality, VR headsets were those giant, you know, those giant things that would kind of <laughs> jut out of your head and things like that. It skips over that. Yeah, Dean Pelton style VR glasses. <laughs> yeah, it jumps over all of that and it actually skips to the point when VR becomes about um, headsets and like, well very normal looking like you know headphones and microphones and the ability to kind of use that level of communication uh, to interact with somebody to create that immersive experience where they can physically move around in a real environment and be experiencing all these things happening at the same time uh, without it being a projection into their head which is obviously what's happening in um, in a b and c yeah, so if, if you think now about some of the immersive theme park rides that you get, where they turn their queuing systems into almost like an elaborate play mm. that you're part of in order to make the ride part of something bigger, or, or more specifically, something like Secret Cinema, mm. uh, which is something that, I know it happens in London, I presume that they have it in, in loads of cities around mm. the world, because it's such a big thing now, where people book to go and see a film on a big sort of open air screen. Well, I don't know if it's always open air. I've never actually been to one of them, but I, I know lots of people who, who go to them where they create an immersive experience where you get given a character that you have to play when you, you come along to it. So you go in costume and they have created part of the world of whatever the film is that you're going to go and immerse yourself into. And there are people... Uh, there who are part of the staff who are playing roles and you go through some kind of elaborate pre-movie experience mm. that's like living theatre before you go and see the film so they've done things like uh, Back to the Future where they've you know recreated the 1950s um, town Hill Valley yeah um, complete with the clock tower and everything and the dance and and they've done one uh, that was Blade Runner where they 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 recreate the whole aesthetic of Blade Runner around for you to go and experience. And it it, it feels like that, but you didn't realise that you were in it. That someone had, had drugged you and erased your memory and you woke up and you thought that this was the world mm. that you were in. We can sometimes view number six in the village as him having that immersive experience. You know, he's in a place which... You know, he's he's drugged, he wakes up in a place he doesn't understand, and it's completely real to him. In a strange kind of way, this episode also questions the nature of reality that people experience. Mm. Um, if you want to go really inception on this, you don't know if actually he, he re-enters the world. And he's actually still in a, <laughs> you know, uh, um, some kind of immersive experience itself where he's in the village. I mean, you have no idea what's happening. But I like the idea that it it moves to take the episode back into the world of the prisoner at the end having deliberately thrown the audience by unapologetically saying this is a western we're not going to tell you who these characters are or why they're here obviously one of them looks a lot like number six but there's not but the fact they don't put credits at the beginning and and make it uh feel like a normal episode makes you question everything and you start to wonder exactly what it is you're watching is this is this something in somebody's imagination or, as we find out, is this actually something which the village is doing, just as they always would? But this is just the most elaborate scheme we've seen so far. 
Yeah, so in that respect, it's playing with the audience just as it's playing with number six, where you're just thrown into this world with no explanation at the beginning as to what on earth is going on. You know, it's it's not bookended with number two and number eight sitting around thinking, aha, now we are going to manipulate number six into thinking that he's mm. in the Old West. It, it, it just puts you in the same position of the stranger, which is what the hell is going on here. And in fact, um, it was the Fallout Guide uh, by Alan Stevens and Shona Moore, where they mentioned that when the show was repeated in the UK in the 1970s, some of the ITV regions put a The Prisoner caption over the title sequences because they were afraid that the audience would be confused as to what they were watching. Mm. And this really annoyed McGowan because he didn't want that to be done. The whole purpose of it was right from the beginning. It is, no, living in harmony. This is a Western. This is the world. You don't break the world until the point when number six wakes up on the saloon floor having apparently been killed. That's the point where you break the illusion. And that putting that superimposed title card of the prisoner at the beginning, it's kind of treating the audience like they're too dumb to just go with what is being presented to them. And I think that's hopefully a mistake that TV networks wouldn't make anymore, but I kind of feel like some of them probably would. (laughs) (laughs) They still underestimate the audience's ability to go with something strange. But but I, I think by and large, there are networks which are willing to challenge the audience in that way and some that really aren't (laughs) but things are getting better you would hope (laughs) fill him with hallucinatory drugs put him in a dangerous environment talk to him through microphones it's always worked and it would have worked this time if you had but it didn't did it so six manages to find his way back to the green dome where the judge is now in a more familiar costume as a regular village number two next to him again wearing red Mm. is uh the kid who now talks and we also see kathy who's standing there as well by a penny farthing Um, all of them dressed in more canonical village garb i suppose all the characters who we've seen in the previous 40 odd minutes of the episode of the prisoner in full immersion in the world of harmony Six doesn't say anything at this point. He looks, he sees, he understands exactly what's going on, and he leaves. In the midst of this, you then have an interesting conversation, which I suppose is designed to explain exactly how this has all taken place, between number two and, well, the kid, who is actually now uh, number eight. Basically, number two is castigating number eight for putting this idea forward and executing it in the way that it has been executed. There's reference to feeding him information through headphones, pumping him full of drugs, as you were saying, laying out the series of events in this immersive experience of him falling in love or feeling some affinity towards the character of uh, Kathy. The fact that they would introduce a crisis, you know, maybe they are trying to, you know, engineer every aspect of how six would respond to everything and of course the thing we know about number six is even in even outside of the world of the village he's unpredictable he doesn't do what you expect him to do so this is never going to work yeah i love the way all three of them are pictured in this scene because you've got 
number two, aka the judge, and number eight, aka the kid, standing quite close together, but number eight clearly realises that something's gone wrong, and he's kind of, he's got his arms folded, he's looking at the floor, he's looking angry, and rather annoyed at the failure of this, and number two is looking at him, and clearly blaming him mm. for what has gone on. So this This power dynamic of the judge being in control of the kid is still playing out in the village where number two is ultimately higher up in the village hierarchy than number eight and is going to blame number eight for what has happened. And number eight is looking a bit sulky about the whole thing. But the fact that number eight is refusing to accept the blame, mm. you know, it does, it does also uh, reflect the kid's failure to take responsibility for his actions mm. you know he just does stuff and you know he's he's out of control here as well you know he just you know he he has an idea and he runs with it and it's clear it hasn't worked but he cannot come up with a a way to articulate that you know he just basically says you know this is not the way i anticipated we should have done it differently and then immediately number two is like no this is your responsibility so although it's clear that at this point, number eight is not as psychotic as the kid. He's unable to deal with the consequences of his actions, um, which is obviously something that we have seen already in, in the scenes in Harmony. Yeah, and I love the fact that he's still wearing this bright red, because aside from number eight and the kid, the only other red we see is either the occasional splash of blood, which is far too bright to really be blood but the same kind of bright red and the piece of red cloth that the stranger tied around his hand where his uh, his wound mm. was that's the only other bright shocking red in the episode which i think can't be an accident <laughs> but at the same time number 22 who is playing kathy in the illusion is standing apart from both of them she's standing at the side of the room next to the penny farthing She's looking devastated, very upset and very guilty. And we never really find out why she was getting involved in this. I think there's like an earlier version of the script where they had her brother or something like that. But in the finished story as it's presented, you don't know, was she another villager who was manipulated into doing this? Was she, you know, was she a prisoner or was she a, a warden? We never really find out, but clearly she's become emotionally involved in the story enough that she feels awful for what's happened for number six. And she feels personally guilty for being a part of it. And she's standing deliberately apart from all the rest of them. And although she doesn't have her elaborate feathered headgear anymore, <laughs> she's, she's still wearing a hat, which mm. I thought was a nice touch. So in the midst of number two and number eight blaming each other, there's a very sort of telling line here, which is number eight saying that number six found it easier than expected to tell the fantasy from the reality mm. during this induction of you know hallucinatory VR experience that was designed to manipulate what uh, what six would perceive as real. So number twenty two, aka Kathy, goes for a walk around the Harmony set. Mm. And she goes into the Silver Dollar Saloon and you hear the faint music, cliche, 
tinkering piano music that you get in old mm. western saloons it's not really there but this is her recollecting what it was like to be in that virtual experience mm. so you started to get glimpses into her mind as this music fades in and out but as she leaves the green dome it's interesting because you see that there's a change in uh, in number eight because his eyes are locked onto her as he sees her leaving, there's something again that becomes a little bit kid-like about the whole thing. Um, there's a moment where he looks to the screen, and you can see the Western set on the big monitor, which is probably how they've been monitoring everything that's been happening. But he is still locked onto probably the relationship that the kid had with Kathy, which number two doesn't really see. Mm. Number and, two is too preoccupied with the fact that he has to answer for why it didn't work. Yeah. And when number 22 is in the saloon, it's, it's it, there's a bizarre moment. It's really, really freaky when you see it. But she kind of goes up the, uh, to the stairs and she rests her head on one of the steps. And in the darkness behind each of the steps, we suddenly see that number eight is there. And he's watching her from behind the staircase, sort of looking through all the, all the gaps. And immediately this clearly freaks out number 22. Now, she tries to kind of leave and says, you know, what are you doing? But number eight is suddenly wild eyed and crazy. It's clear he's gone back into the mode of being the kid again. Yeah, his whole demeanour changes. His body language is suddenly that of the kid as he kind of emerges from the shadows. And again, in some ways, it feels a bit like a horror film, the way Mm. that part is shot. When number eight attacks number 22... It cuts to number six, who has also gone to have a wander around the Harmony mm. set, who hears the screams. But it's not number 22 screaming, is it? It's number eight it's a, letting out this kind of guttural scream. Yeah, as he's strangling Kathy. Or, yeah. Or, yeah, even I'm getting confused now. Uh, Kathy, you know, aka uh, number 22. Yeah, and in some ways it feels like the only thing we ever hear the kid saying mm. is this scream, because suddenly he is the kid again. As he rushes into the saloon, he finds Kathy dying on the floor. And she says to him, I wish it had been real. <laughs> Which is a very strange thing to say about a, a horrible experience that was harmony. Hmm. But it also, going back to what uh, number eight says, it, it shows that although number six was able to tell the difference between the fantasy of the, the VR experience and the reality of him being in the village, it's clear that it kind of absorbed everyone else too much and they weren't able to see that potentially number two is fine with everything but the role that number 22 has played has clearly affected her in some way she's she's unclear about the motives behind the manipulation of six to an extent and she may have also grown to have feelings for number six as well that triggers jealousy in number eight who reverts to the kid-like character Um, so this is clearly something within him and it bubbles up to the surface, and he, he, you know, although he knows he's in the real world, the fact that they transport the strangulation to the set of Harmony implies that he doesn't need to have the headphones and the microphones and drugs or whatever to get him in that in that headspace. He is able to f- switch into that mode the minute he's on set. It basically evokes all the feelings which are already inside him. But it's a shocking scene to watch. But like you said, I mean, they they play both scenes of him murdering Kathy earlier on and number 22 as 
very disturbing horror scenes. I mean, way beyond what you'd expect in um, in the prisoner. And it just makes it all the more disturbing that he has this, you know, this empty look of a child almost. You know, he's just there and he's carrying out something. And it's when it's interesting that he doesn't scream when he kills Kathy, but here he does. Because almost like the reality of it is it becomes tangible. He's actually doing it. He's actually strangling number 22. And it evokes some physical response and that allows him to let out a sound that he wasn't able to do when he was the kid. He was completely silent back then. Yeah, and you have that really incongruous shot of number two arriving in a mini moke onto the set of Harmony. Mm. So instead of somebody pulling up on a, a horse, it's the reality of the village cr- crashing into mm. the set of Harmony as this completely out-of-place thing arrives. And when number two goes into the saloon set to see what's going on, number eight, as the kid, now seems to have finally found his voice as the kid. Because when he gets up off the floor and starts running up the stairs, he he calls number two the judge and says, you ain't going to hit me no more. Um, It's like he, he, he can no longer understand that he isn't the kid. It's like he's really experienced being slapped down by the judge over and over again and he's decided that that's not going to happen now and ultimately leaps to his death from the same balcony that we saw the judge earlier on surveying everything that was uh, going on yeah and the two bodies of uh, Kathy and the kid or number 22 and number eight just sprawled out on the floor it's just a weird and very disturbing way to end it there's no I mean it's not an episode where anyone wins in a strange kind of way it's not it doesn't end in the classical way of of uh you know six overcoming the village or the village getting one over on six it's like everything is just in disarray it's hard to work out how things recover from this like the whole operation is just has just fallen apart and it's resulted in two people being killed as a result of an attempt by you know, number two to manipulate number six. I mean, suddenly the motivations become completely blurred and the effect it's had on the people playing roles in it have ironically affected the people on the side of the village rather than number six. And when number six walks out of the set, leaving number two there to survey the scene, you know, it's like his, his neat game of patience in which everything was in its proper columns are now the the messed up cards, half upside down, sprawled out across the table, no longer making any kind of sense. So it's strange that as number six can walk away, there's a sense of overall trauma that's left behind with the remaining characters. Mm. Well, it's as if throughout the whole time in Harmony, number six as a stranger never really stopped being himself. He always responded in the way that number six would uh you know it's a sense where even in the village he never gives up himself as an individual he never changes who he is for the you know the the sort of nightmare scenario that he finds himself in he he remains himself even if it seems like a terrible idea in the circumstances so whereas this experience seems to drastically change number eight and number 22 Maybe number eight more so than number 22, but it seems to have a profound effect on their personalities afterwards. It doesn't seem to have a, a, a 
devastating effect on number six because he never became someone else. Mm. He, the stranger was who he was. Whereas number 22 and number six, they seem to lose themselves in the roles that they inhabit in this world that they've been put into, where number 22 begins to have feelings for number six in some way that leads her to feeling guilty about taking part in the whole thing. And number eight seems to go from being someone who had presumably created this whole system to starting to inhabit this psychopathic character complete with all of the baggage that he was carrying about the role that he played in being treated as a kid by the judge and manipulated and told what to do to the point where they end up recreating the fiction in the real world and yet number six created the real him in the fiction Hmm. the stranger was who he was he didn't have to become someone else he retains his individuality uh, and his sense of self throughout these kind of manipulations which is what we've seen before in other episodes yeah i also wonder if do you think there's a chance that in the real world in the world of the village number eight already had a fixation on number 22 it could be that they then carried over into the fiction itself. Yeah, because it's... I mean, it could have even been that they were in a relationship, albeit a very unhealthy one. But it's almost like the nature of this game that they're playing with number six has triggered a situation where number 22 actually falls for number six. And it's that... It's the reality of people's emotions which cannot be constrained or manipulated by the virtual reality world they're in. You know, so this does actually trigger genuine feelings of jealousy in uh, in number eight, and they play out in the real world. Um, the fact that he um, is portrayed in the same way as, as the kid, even though in that same scene, number 22 is not dressed as, or appears to dress like, like Kathy. He is just the same in both experiences, you know, in the real world of the village, and also in the in the false reality of harmony. Yeah, and in fact, if, if you wanted to view it as a, a, a sort of anti-war allegory, what you have is a character who was sent into this violent situation to play a role where they had to carry a gun and shoot people, who then goes back to the real world of the village, in inverted commas, and cannot just go back to their old life again. Almost like he's got some kind of PTSD where the violence just comes along with him. Even if that wasn't who he was before they created the harmony experience. Hmm. And we've seen these things before when they try to manipulate number six with drugs. It's interesting how the scientist involved will always say, no, don't go too far because it can be very dangerous. Hmm. And you wonder if certain people cannot tolerate this kind of immersion Um, involving hallucinogenic drugs and manipulation and things like that. It says more about the strength of character of number six, that he is not somebody who is easily drawn into these things. He, uh, He will not conform and he will stand up for what he believes in, in any reality, even the ones that they kind of try and create for him. Do not forsake me, oh For I must face a man who picks me 
so that's it for our recap and discussion and dissection of the episode Living in Harmony. Yes, otherwise known as Do Not Forsake Me, My Darling. You <laughs> think of it as original title. And I've I've got to go back to my my initial exposure to the song Do Not Forsake Me, My Darling, which of course is from High Noon. But when I was a kid, I hadn't seen High Noon. I didn't even know High Noon existed as a film. But what I did watch was Red Dwarf. I, I knew where this was going. <laughs> <laughs> and in Red Dwarf in season two, it's one of the best episodes of Red Dwarf ever called Queeg, where Holly, the ship's computer, gets challenged by a much smarter, much faster computer who comes along and, and effectively takes over the ship and instigates a new regime on board. And there's this moment right towards the end of the episode where Holly, who now inhabits this kind of um, television set on, on wheels that's trundling along through the corridors of the mining ship Red Dwarf, decides that he's going to go and face down Queeg, the computer who has taken over, once and for all. There's going to be a showdown between the two of them. And as he's rolling along through the corridors, in the background, it plays the song, Do Not Forsake Me, Oh My Darling. And, you know, for I must face the man who hates me or else be coward in my grave. (laughs) Something like that. And for years, that was what that song meant to me. That was what the phrase, Do Not Forsake Me, Oh My Darling, meant to me. So when I first encountered The Prisoner, obviously I didn't realise that this was the episode that was meant to have that title. When I first encountered The Prisoner, I just knew that that was the title of the Mind Swap episode. But that was still what that meant to me. Hmm. And even to this day, I must have seen that episode of Red Dwarf 50 times. I don't know how often I've I've seen that show. But I, I still can't think of the song without thinking of Holly trundling along through the corridors off to uh, have a showdown with with Queeg the computer. <laughs> uh, so if you haven't watched Red Dwarf, I highly recommend it. It's wonderful. Now, there you go. <laughs> so on that note, uh, we're now going to have our latest news from the world of the prisoner featuring Rick Davey from the Unmutual website. This is Rick Davey of the Unmutual website at www.theunmutual.co.uk with all the latest news from the world of the prisoner. Some sad breaking news regarding voice of the village, Fenella Fielding. The following statement has been sent out to her website subscribers and posted on the internet by her best friend Simon McKay. I'm very sorry to be writing to say that Fenella had a severe stroke on Saturday. I quickly recognised what it was and the ambulance arrived almost immediately, but sadly there was still very little that could be done. At this time it is unclear what level of recovery might be possible. She's sleeping a lot, but when she has been awake she's been in good spirits. On Sunday, with some effort, she said to me, Can you get us out of here? Typical moment of light relief aside, various doctors have been keen to impress upon me that the situation is very serious and Fenella remains critical. Please be assured that she has first-rate care. I will continue to be by her side daily and we'll see where we can get to. I'll keep you posted. Everyone connected to the Unmutual website and the Tally Ho podcast, of course, wishes Fenella and Simon well. In event news, changes have been made to the lineup for the Eternal Village, a prisoner convention taking place in Seattle, USA, on September the 9th. 
Now added to the schedule will be a live link-up via video phone with Big Finish's Nicholas Briggs, Everyman actor Brian Gorman, and the Tally Ho podcast. Tickets for the event are still available from theeternalvillage.com. Even more guests have also been announced for the Celebration of ITC event taking place at Elstree Studios on the 17th of November. In addition to confirmed guests Annette Andre, Shane Rimmer and John Huff, stars from two Jerry Anderson series have now been confirmed. Georgina Moon, star of UFO, and Prentice Hancock, star of Space 1999 and Return of the Saint, will take part in exclusive Q&As and signing sessions. Tickets are still available for the event, with more guests to be announced at coitsmedia.co.uk. In other news, the company Network have included several Prisoner and Patrick McGowan titles in their latest sale, entitled Bonkers. Check out networkonair.com for more details. And finally, designer Michael Packwode, who worked on the 2009 remake of The Prisoner, has sadly passed away. Join me again on the next Tally Ho podcast for all the latest news from the world of The Prisoner. Be seeing you. So thanks, Rick, for bringing us the latest news from the world of The Prisoner. There'll be more of that in the next episode of the Tally Ho podcast. Yes, and as Rick mentioned, uh, there's very sad news about both Fenella Fielding and Michael Pickwode. We actually interviewed Michael Pickwode last year for the 50th anniversary of The Prisoner because, as Rick mentioned, he worked as the production designer on the 2009 miniseries and he was really a remarkable force in production design in British film and television over the last few decades. Uh, he started out very early in his career on the classic movie With Nail and I. Uh, he worked on iconic shows like Poirot, and he's probably most famous, certainly for the last few years, for the work that he did on Doctor Who. He was the lead production designer on Doctor Who for many years during the Moffat era, and in particular he designed the console rooms of the TARDIS for both the 11th Doctor Matt Smith and the 12th Doctor Peter Capaldi. So he will be sadly missed. And we also wish Fenella Fielding and her family all the very best. Information. Information. As we mentioned at the beginning of the episode, we're going to bring you a bonus episode featuring our interview with Ian Rakoff. And what we'd like to do now is give you a little sneak preview of some of that interview uh, the full version of which will be coming to you in about a week's time. Yeah, in a very extended episode. Yes. <laughs> I had this horrible experience, um, interview with McGowan. At the end of it, he said, um, would you like uh, to write the Western, a Western for me? I said, sure. He says, the, the contract's waiting outside for you. And Roger, the one-eyed secretary. <laughs> What's what was the name? Rover was the the balloon. Yeah, Roger was the secretary. <laughs> I, I get them mixed up sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> and um, he, well, he went berserk and hated it, and and then I just went off and read a Gene Autry comic and said, right. That's the gist of that's living in harmony, and it's from that Gene Autry story, which I did, and um, I uh, wrote it. Had a few sessions, I think, with McGurn, 
and he just, I don't know, somehow vetted what I did. But then, then he had to go to Hollywood, and um, he said he's sorry, very meek. Any time I saw him meek and apologetic, I'm going to let you down because you know the agreement was we were going to write together. And he says um, I'm going to leave you in good hands. The good hands were the hands of a strangler. <laughs> <laughs> So that interview with Ian will be coming up in the next episode of the Tally Ho podcast. After that, we'll resume our episode by episode podcasts where we'll be talking about The Girl Who Was Death, episode 15. Yes, just when you thought the prisoner couldn't get any more bonkers than it's already become. <laughs> yeah, and it's... Um, I suppose we haven't really discussed it, but it's this second production block where things really start to go bonkers like mm. you say in the prisoner i mean they're they're very unusual episodes that that move into a very different space in the mythology of the prisoner and i think yeah we have do not forsake me oh my darling we have living in harmony we have the girl who was death and we have fallout the one extra episode in that is the penultimate episode once upon a time but that was actually shot in the first production block and mm. just held back to be the penultimate episode but these last four episodes are highly unusual episodes of The Prisoner and indeed uh, of television as well. <laughs> um, so we'll be back next time to talk about The Girl Who Was Death. But in the meantime, do let us know what you think about the podcast. Let us know what you think about The Prisoner. We love talking about it. We love receiving messages and uh, discussing aspects of the show. You can get in touch, as we always say, on Twitter at TFCAA we're on Facebook, just search for Time for Cakes Nail, and we have a website, www.timeforcakesnail.com. And if you do listen to the podcast through a service like iTunes, please, if you have the time, uh, give us a review and rating because it really helps boost the signal when it comes to getting the word about our podcast out to other prisoner fans. Yep, but that's it for now. Until next time, signing off from the Tally Ho. Be seeing you.